Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. We are SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. Find us online at blessyouboys.com, on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hookslide. My co-host, Rob Rojacki, is back in the saddle. And Rob, we made it. We said at the end of 2015 that we were going to do our best to keep the podcast going on a weekly basis, even during the dark December, January, February days. And here we are. It's baseball season again. Man, if we uh, if we have a bunch of games like that first one, though, I don't know if we're going to make it all the way through. Well, you did promise your first word would be the F-bomb, and uh, you've, you've delivered. So There it is. My hat's off to you, sir. At least I know right where to go and get it in the post-edit. So. <laughs> wow. All right. Way to, uh, way to get back. How was vacation? It was good. It was good. good. I didn't want to come back. Those are the good ones, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, absolutely. If, if you feel like, you know, it's a, it's a it's I was like, yeah, I can stay here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how you want a vacation to end, being miserable mm-hmm. that you're back to real life. So, yep. And yes, uh, we did end up missing last week's show, and that was entirely my fault because I got hit with yet another virus bomb of some sort, and it just destroyed my throat and my lungs, and there's still maybe a little bit of that left over, so I apologize if you can hear that coming through the mic, but... Uh, we got to get a show on, so it's uh, it's opening week, and we're excited, so let's get this show started. Uh, we've got to talk about the opening series against the Marlins. We've got to talk about the upcoming contests against the Yankees and the Pirates. We're going to chew on some controversial news concerning smokeless tobacco. Ha, ha, ha. We'll take some listener questions and wrap up by dedicating our kvetching segment to one Brad Osmus. But first, let's round the bases. This is how you win the division. More on that after the break. Ball here to center. Way back in center. Deep. Gone. Whoa, man. Straight away center to the camera well. Three runs shot for Cabrera. As far as you'll see one hit here at Comerica Park. And the Tigers take a 3 nothing. All right, let's get the show started with our Rounding the Bases segment. This is how you win the division. It helps to start by going 2-0, and and that's exactly what the Tigers have done. Uh, although, Rob, that first game was kind of a nail-biter. A little bit there. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was good up until that ninth inning, but so maybe we could focus on the other 10 innings of baseball that weren't so, weren't so <laughs> awful. It was all, I mean... All things considered, the two and zero record. You know, there it was. It was, it was a pretty good set of couple. You know, a couple of games there. I thought. I mean, you got a whole. Oh, I, th- I thought it was very good. And the and the the one nice thing about having such a wild game in the opener is that it does give us a lot to talk about. You know, we sure. can really kind of. And I'm kind of inter- excited to do this. We get to kind of really dive in and break down a lot of the stuff that happened, uh, and just you know, kind of. 
I guess, overanalyze a couple of games, and you know, it doesn't really mean anything quite yet. Uh, it's nice to be two and zero, but uh, at the same time, we we have we have baseball to talk about, and I, uh, that's. It's exciting. You can say that it doesn't mean anything, and that's that's true to a certain extent. I always kind of joke about the fact that we wait so long to get into baseball. We get spring training games that literally do not mean anything, and then most of April is kind of like, yeah, it's real baseball, but you don't get to draw any conclusions from it. But at the same time, it does count, at least in this sense. Those two wins are two wins that are in the win column permanently. Those stay all the way through September into October. We're in first place. I will take that. Uh, and still the... Uh, the only remaining AL Central team that is undefeated because the Sox, who were 2-0, lost to the Oakland A's last night. So They won again today, though, so I think they're 3-1 and one now. Did they really? Yeah, Oakland, not helping us out at all. Yeah, I don't expect Oakland to give us a whole lot of help, but that's all right because I like the idea of Hawk Harrelson getting a lot of like self-confidence and getting excited over things that don't matter. So it just kind of sets him up for the big fall at the end of the month. So. Did you hear the... <laughs> Did you hear the call he had last night? Uh, there's a, a fly ball. I can't remember who hit it, but someone from the A's hits a fly ball, and he's like, oh, it's up, up the right field, can of corn, and the ball just carries out of the stadium. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was watching so when that happened. That was uh, Canna. Canna hit the— And then and then he just pauses and goes, and it's gone. Canna in the right field. That's can of corn. <laughs> did he I had to think about it for a second I'm like can of corn can of corn is there any way that that ever refers to a fly or like a home run did he mean to say that no he he blew that call hardcore well, do you remember that call a few years ago uh yeah, we were I playing the, the Indians where uh the Verlander's pitching in the ninth and I think it was Grady Sizemore so this is a while ago uh but he it's a fly ball to deep center field and the Indians announcers are getting excited and think was it granderson still playing back then then or was it yeah i, I thought you were going to talk about the other uh the other game though the the i don't know who they were playing the white Sox. though the other hawk harrelson call when uh there was another similar situation where it was a home run and he you know his his signature call right you can put it on the board and he actually tried to pull off that call and ended up like he wasn't sure if it went out he was like you can put it on the board yes N- no <laughs> maxwell at the wall jumps what is it? You can put it no safe. You can put it on the board or what? Anyway, he's coming around. You can put it on the board. Yes. Anyway, Hawk hate. Uh, it's it's a staple on this on this show. But anyway, uh, yeah. So the Tigers are two and zero. Oh, they're the only undefeated AL Central team. Um, let's just talk about. Let's dive into like what's what's the. Give me your like top three takeaways. You know the good things you noticed from those couple of games. Well, his team's going to hit. Yeah, I think we kind of knew that going into this, but man, are they going to hit? Or are they going to give some teams trouble? Uh, even if you go, you know, going up against Jose Fernandez and striking out what was it thirteen times in less than six innings? Uh, you know, they're going to strike out some, and I don't necessarily think it's going to be a problem over the course of the year. But when you're doing quite a bit of damage otherwise, and you're able to score five runs off of maybe five or six hits. In that in that sequence and be able to hit for power too, I think this team is going to be scary, scary offensively. It was surprising to me how many runs they scored when when you do go back and look at Jose Fernandez's final line and you see that, you know that thirteen strikeouts that he racked up and it was just he was on a roll. I was surprised to go back later like wow he pitched a really good game and they still got he still got you know hammered pretty bad. Yeah, they did. I mean they took advantage. I think that he got pulled. Uh, 
was he the one that gave up the double Castellanos or was that a reliever by that point? I can't remember. I think Castellanos hit the double. I think that's what finally yeah, yeah. pulled him out of the game. Was that the, was that the nail in the coffin there? Yeah. All right. Um, but anyway, yeah, to be able to do that, I mean, every single mistake that he, like the few mistakes that he made were all punished. And that really was kind of the same case with, uh, with Wei and Chen in the opener too. Uh, and man, the lefties just don't even try. Right. I, I'm I'm shocked that the Yankees this weekend we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but I'm shocked that the Yankees are sending CC Sabathia out there to face this team. Right. That could that could be ugly. And talk about I mean Jared Salzalamakia going yard in the second game and and with authority off the facing of the upper deck in right field there. Anthony Ghost doing the same thing in the first game, getting some power from I mean I guess I wouldn't say unexpected in, except in the case of Ghost you certainly expect to get that power out of Salzalamakia but. Oh, wow. I mean, it's just it feels like they're getting production kind of up and down the lineup. And that seems to be kind of a hallmark of the April, you know, Tigers in the last couple of years. It definitely does. Um, I said in a post on the site today that Saul Tolamaki is really kind of a game changer for them. You know, I was big on that signing from the start. Uh, Saul Tolamaki has struggled in his couple of years in Miami, but he really kind of turned it around when he got out of there and ended up in um, in Arizona where he was able to play for pretty well for a few months uh the thing that i really like about him being with the tigers is that they're going to be able to put him in the positions that they want to put him in he's not going to face many lefties which he struggles against because james mccann is so good against lefties he's going to be able to face tough righties like jose fernandez the in you know the fact that he's able to ho- homer off fernandez is great but just being able to you know, get him in those positions and hopefully pinch hit for him at times too uh or pinch hit with him at times, too, is going to be big because they're not going to have Victor Martinez hitting pinch hit home runs all year, although that was pretty nice, too. Well, good grief. You talk about, you know, and they, they ran the stat. Everybody ran the stat. The fact that he came out and hit two pinch hit home runs in a row, two days in a row, and that apparently had never been done in baseball history. So there you go. Victor Martinez of our Detroit Tigers setting Major League history with two back-to-back pinch hit home runs. What, that what, one what from the left. That one from the left side, man, he crushed the opposite field. Yeah, I mean, they're in the Marlins Park too. That's not no, that's not a cheapie. That's not like hitting in Chicago or Cincinnati. Oh, that was the one that hit their stupid home run sculpture, wasn't it? Yep. <laughs> I was so hoping he would like accidentally trigger it by uh-huh. hitting it, but uh, no such luck. But yeah, oh, that was yeah. just. You know, anytime you get a guy off the bench to come in and pinch hit, and you talk about you want some quote unquote thump off the bench, you know, and. I don't know that anybody expects that pinch hitter to actually hit a home run. It's mm-hmm. the best case scenario. But to see him come out and do that, not just once, but then two nights in a row, like, yeah. Victor wants to play baseball, is mm-hmm. what's, what's and happening. And he looks, and he looks healthy, and it's so good. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. That left-handed swing is every, everybody uh-huh. was worried about. We were talking about it, you know, for, for weeks in spring training and saying that's that's the indicator, and he's mm-hmm. hitting. Yeah. Uh, is it anyway. going to be... Is it gonna be uh, I mean, I know it's too early to say this, but is, is are we looking at 2014, Victor? We uh, I don't necessarily know about 2014, Victor, but if you can get something, you know, like maybe 2013 with a little more power, 2011 with a little more power, uh, you know, maybe he hits 15 home runs. That's going to be great. I mean, he's, you know, he's already like already almost 20 percent there, but um, <laughs> to get to get you know something like that just just get him back to the guy that was hitting 300 with a good on-base percentage and driving and runs behind Cabrera and this team's gonna be scared if he's hitting if we get 2014 Victor oh man that's that's amazing Rob, <laughs> Rob needs new shorts right no, my my friend texted me after after that second home run just to remind me he's like uh, you do realize that he's on pace to absolutely shatter the home run record right <laughs> like 
<laughs> someone someone tweeted us uh, after the first game saying, you know, Victor's going to hit 162 home runs with a 162 RBIs, right? And I said, no, he's going to hit a couple, you know, multi-run homers too. And there he, you know, second game, there he goes. Right, right. And who mm-hmm. says he's only going to hit one per game? He's got to have a couple multi-home run games. So he I'm, could. I'm looking at like 200 home <laughs> runs easy. I'm, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Yes. Wow, getting, getting anyway way ahead of ourselves on this. Well, get, getting into, I guess, kind of switching gears a little bit here. Yeah. Um, one thing, uh, or a couple of takeaways that I had, I thought Anthony Ghost looked very competent against lefties. Like, he hit the one bullet off of Wei and Chen, and then there was another at-bat later in that game where he smoked another ball off a lefty. I think it was a line drive to center field. Um, and, I've, and I think it was caught, but still, it was a well-hit ball, and he's looked okay so far. I know it's a very small sample, but... I'm impressed by that. Yeah, and the thing is, I you know, if he's able to even improve a little bit against lefties, that's great. And but for me, the thing is, on the other hand, that he doesn't really necessarily even have to because eventually we get Cameron Mabin back, mm-hmm. you know, who can kind of fill in that spot and play for Ghost. So it's anything you get on top of that, any kind of improvement from Ghost is just kind of icing on the cake as far as well, as far as I'm concerned. And then the other thing that I noticed of the two Tigers that are leading the team in pitches per plate appearances right now. Jose Iglesias and Anthony goes. If those two guys, they don't necessarily need to keep hitting the way they are because they're both putting up some monster numbers in those first two games. But if they continue driving up pitch counts, following off pitches, especially Iglesias, who doesn't strike out much, if they're able to, you know, just kind of work the count a lot at the bottom of that order, even if they're not getting on base a ton, you know, not having these monster seasons, that's huge for the rest of the lineup. Getting out, you know, getting that starter out of the way and getting into the bullpen, and then you know, you just let the big bats go to work. That's very true. Uh, just the ability to drive up pitch counts. We saw that on the on the opening night, and with uh, Ichiro coming out and doing what he did to Justin Verlander. Verlander had been cruising up until that point, with his no hitter still intact. He had a very decent pitch count at that point in the game, and then Ichiro came out and just screwed everything up by making him throw. I think it was at least a ten pitch at bat, if not eleven. About that, yeah. And everything changed after that. Uh, he. If I'm not mistaken, he did retire Ichiro, didn't he? He did retire yeah. Ichiro, but then but I think then it fell apart. Yeah, didn't D Gordon hit like the first pitch in the next at bat? I yeah, think. that makes sense. Good. So yeah. some like a first pitch fastball there. He left another one up to Ozuna, who hit it into center field pretty solidly for the hit. Uh, and then you know that hanger to Stanton. If anything, I almost thought that Stanton looked like he got fooled a little bit mm-hmm. on that mm-hmm. and hit it out just because he's Giancarlo Stanton. Right. That was just so, that was a, a reaction yeah, swing. That was that was one of those ones that like I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. Right. Right. That one, no, I know. It, so people were freaking you know. out about it, you know, and upset that Osmus left uh, you know Verlander in there, and you know was, I even heard comments like he's, it was a pedestrian outing on you know like come on. You leave a He's hanger. your ace. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in the end, it looked, you know, rather, you know, okay by his standards. But for the first five innings, man, that was Justin Verlander. What more do you want? He he gives up a base hit to, like, you know, last, last year's National League batting champion. He leaves a hanger out to Giancarlo Stanton, who's going to do that when you leave the cookie out there like that. Other than that, I mean, geez, I will take that outing from Verlander pretty much every single time. Another thing I saw on the site today is that Verlander actually got more whiffs in his outing, or a higher percentage of whiffs, maybe, yes. than Jose Fernandez, did. Yes. Jose Fernandez did the next day. And so, you know, he's not necessarily going to induce 15 16% swing and miss percentage. This is the Marlins, after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if he's able to, you know, get above that 10% range, kind of where those elite starters tend to sit, that's huge. He doesn't necessarily need the velocity to do that. And that's only the first game. 
I mean, you have to imagine that he's still kind of ramping up, you know, and will continue to do so. Didn't he say that he, like, wasn't where he wants to be? Yes, he did. He felt like it wasn't that great of an outing, according to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, just in terms of, well, at least some of it. He said, like, the curveball in particular. Remember Dan Dickerson saying the curveball looked amazing, and yet JV was saying, yeah, I wasn't really all that impressed with it. It doesn't quite feel right yet, you know? Well, it didn't even look, it didn't necessarily look like it is. It almost looked like, you know how he's got that kind of big 12-6 curveball? Yeah. It almost looked it was like one to seven if i get my clock right it has a little bit more of a slurve to it so i don't necessarily know if that was by design or if that was more the slider that he was toying with or what but it didn't it didn't look the same it was just weird yeah like i said that's just that's just the one outing and that's you know that's still him ramping up I'm, i'm very excited to see what he's got to offer come early may say and that's, I mean, I think true for, for a lot of what we're going to be talking about. If this is truly kind of a harbinger of things to come, then it looks very good. And I want to see what this looks like once it's set in stone. Let's talk a little bit about the bullpen, uh, specifically 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, because we got to kind of look at that two nights in a row. Justin Wilson pitched the 7th both nights. Mark Lowe pitched the 8th both nights. Those guys, I thought, did fantastic. The 7th and 8th innings were wonderfully boring. It was amazing. You know, Wilson comes in, he gets, he allows a leadoff single, to the first game, it was to what Justin Bohr, the lefty, uh, and I think that was kind of a you know a pitch off the plate that he beat Bohr the shift. Kind of, yeah, he it, kind of poked out at it. Um, but then you know three righties come up. I think it was three righties in a row. Right. And he just sets them down. One, two, three. No trouble at all. Uh, I don't remember really seeing anything that hard hit off of Wilson, which was nice. You know, Lowe was a little bit different. Uh, I remember his first outing in particular. I actually didn't see him in the eighth inning last night. Um, and that Lowe, you know, got. Uh, both lefties that came up against low hit him a little bit hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was almost looking back at that, almost kind of wondering why, you know, Osmus didn't necessarily switch the two. I'm not complaining about that. It was just kind of an observation I had. Um, because low has definitely had the, uh, you know, some poor numbers in his career against lefties, whereas Wilson has kind of been dominant against both lefties and righties. Mm-hmm. And we really kind of saw, I mean, you know, that inning was vintage Mark Lowe that he, you know, struggles against two lefties. He got uh, Yelich to line out to center, I think. And then, you know, had no problems with the righties either. And how exciting is it? How necessary is this going to be to see a guy like like Lowe and like Wilson both go out there and rack up strikeouts late in those innings? Uh, certainly in the in the first game, I know w- Justin Wilson struck out two of the guys he faced. Uh, Lowe struck out two of the guys that he faced. I'm just pulling up the, uh, the box score from yesterday because I want to say... Wilson wanna... only struck out one. I don't think Lowe got anyone. Yesterday, you mean? Yeah. That, okay, yeah, because I know Wilson got at least one other one, and yeah, you're right. It looks mm-hmm. like uh, uh, Lowe rather didn't didn't get anybody any more strikeouts. Um, nope, a couple of groundouts is what he did. But mm-hmm. still, to to see the the capability there, uh, high strikeout guys coming in late in the innings. Uh, that's to me that is like that's something that's been so lacking. And when I see a guy like Justin Wilson say, you know, go out there and give up that leadoff single, people kind of want to freak out like, oh, great. You put the first you know, guy you face on base. I don't really get too worried anymore at that point because you go, he's got swing and miss stuff. He can I mean, strand these guys. I'm still a little bit worried about it, but it's more just reflex than anything uh, in that, you know, bullpen is in. You got to kind of be on edge. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I was that going just around. so just so impressed with Wilson in particular, looking as mm-hmm. good as he did against righties and you know if he wants to keep up that up all year i'm all for it i know it's great that kind of hard heat from the left side and you know it's reminiscent maybe a little bit of phil coke i know phil coke used to throw hard but it's without 
it's it's high heat and yet without the, the the bad command he's actually hitting spots he's getting called strikes he's getting swings and misses it just i'm amazed at that i love it it's it's you know been a rare sight in detroit so i'm like yeah wow justin wilson was a huge huge pickup and awesome yeah, well, one thing I noticed with Wilson is that, you know, his command may not be excellent. I know he's had a little bit of trouble with walks in his career before. Mm-hmm. But one thing I noticed that you kind of mentioned with a high fastball is that Wilson is very good at locating that high fastball. If he's trying to get a swing and miss with that, he's going to put it upstairs where guys can't necessarily get to it. You know, they may lay off the pitch, but that's, you know, that, that's okay. It's that you're not getting punished with that and leaving it out over the plate too much. He's getting it that elevated enough that hitters aren't able to get, you know, solid contact on it. And oftentimes they're just totally whiffing. Uh, talk a little bit about Drew Verhagen because we got to see him a couple of nights now in a row. And uh, wow, a pleasant surprise to me at least. I know others will say, you know, I saw that coming. I, I didn't. And uh, yeah. that's nice to see. I mean, he looked pretty good in September, but man, that curveball that he threw to Stanton yeah. that first night, yeah, that was nice. Someone said that Joaquin Soria was the one that showed him that grip on that. That sounds familiar. That sounds so, right. So, hey, you know what? Thanks, Soria. I'll take that. <laughs> um, but I was I was also happy that, you know, Osmus was able to go to him in the sixth inning yesterday, and he just came in and shut the door. You know, right. there were a couple guys on base. I think he got a, you know, a weak fly out, like a, for a sacrifice fly. Uh, and, you know, that's going to happen when a guy's on third with no outs. Um, but to only give up maybe one other hit after that, and I think that was, I'm trying to remember back, I think that was another one of those kind of like bouncers that just happened. Like, yeah. I think Marlins Park is a little bit weird in that they get, for whatever reason, things that hit in front of home plate bounce really high there. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's by design because they have a bunch of, you know, fast guys on their roster or what. But there were a couple weird bounces in that, you know, on that infield and in that game. Uh, so, you know, maybe in a, in another environment, he only gives up even just the one inherited run instead of two. Yeah. I'm not sure what they're doing with home plate, but we'll talk about that in just a second, because that certainly came into play in the ninth inning of the first game. The first time we got a chance to see Francisco Rodriguez, K-Rod and, uh, well, you talk about, uh, flashbacks and, you know, reflexive reactions. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes. I want to back up a little bit. I do want to talk a little bit about Anibal Sanchez. Okay. Uh, not necessarily, you know, the decision everyone's talking about to like when to pull him and whatnot, but I thought, I thought he looked pretty good in his first start. Yeah. And I wanted to do a little more kind of in-depth analysis on that today and I didn't get a chance to, but I was kind of looking at some of the preliminary numbers just in terms of his pitch selection and uh, what that looks like compared to his his career uh, at least his career at the Tigers 2012 to 2015 uh, he was certainly throwing the uh, the sink the sinker I guess he got a lot of ground ball outs I yeah. don't necessarily know what the uh, what the ratio was there but it seemed like he got a lot of ground ball outs the ratio is about 42 percent ground ball um, which nice. is, which is right that. in range with his career averages. So mm-hmm. it's, it's good to see he's doing that. He got a really nice high whiff rate on the changeup, which is typical of his changeup career, you know, career long. Uh, but that was really, uh, you know, just comparing pitch selections. He was throwing pretty much everything that he used to, except he was using the sinker a little bit more heavily. Uh, but again, it's just it's one game. Um, but yeah, everything he was he was doing was like I, I said on, on the site, I said it on Twitter when you're going up against Jose Fernandez and the guy is busy racking up 13 strikeouts and blowing everybody away with 97 mile an hour fastballs and curveballs and sliders that just don't quit. 
it's easy to overlook the fact that Sanchez was out there doing a pretty damn good job, inducing a lot of ground balls, getting the swings and misses, looking like the old Sanchez, quietly going about spinning his own little masterpiece and not giving up runs in the process. Yeah, he kind of unraveled toward the end, and you kind of expect that for a guy that you know kind of got a late start to spring training. But otherwise, that is a great outing from Sanchez. Again, I'll take that every single time. I will, I will too. He only had three strikeouts, but otherwise looked really, really good. One thing I noticed with him is that um, I don't, I don't know if this was necessarily just like Miami's radar gun or what, because it seemed like during the broadcast he was hitting like somewhere between like eighty-eight and ninety with his fastball. Mm-hmm. But then I went back and looked at the Brooks numbers, and he was a little bit higher than that. Um, but then he would throw his, you know, slider, and it almost the slider almost looked more like a cutter. And, you know, if he's not getting as much separation between the fastball and the slider, that may actually work to his advantage because then you're able to throw that slider and it looks a little bit more like a cutter. And, you know, guys just weren't able to square that up at all. You know, he was getting the whiff with the changeup, but he was getting a lot of weak contact. And I noticed several ground balls coming off of kind of that slider cutter type pitch. And if he wants to keep that up, that, you know, that's going to be a good one for him. Yeah, there's definitely something up with the with the gun radar gun there in Miami. Dan Dickerson and Jim Price talked about that both games, saying, uh, you know, they noticed it first with Verlander and the fact that he was only sitting something like ninety ninety one, and he's typically closer to ninety two ninety three. And then again with Sanchez, he was sitting eighty eight eighty nine, maybe ninety on the fastball. And again, he's supposed to be closer to ninety one ninety two. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say if that happened two nights in a row, two separate pitchers that you're kind of going, whoa, why are they under their their usual? It's probably the radar gun. Yeah, well, pitch effects had Sanchez kind of in that 91-92 range, so it might have just been the been the gun. But then I noticed that his slider was still kind of the usual 85-86, so I don't know. Something weird going on there. <laughs> it could be the changeup. I don't know. Uh, who was Jim Price, I think, was saying that apparently when Sanchez throws the changeup, he's got like four different speeds on that changeup or what he calls Yeah, I noticed, I noticed in particular um, he was facing Justin Bohr at one point. Uh, Justin Bohr, the lefty, and so he throws a changeup at one point at like 83 or mm-hmm, so. Gets mm-hmm. a swing and a miss. Throws another pitch. Uh, and then he's got him in a two-strike count. Throws the changeup again, and Bohr swings over it. And he threw it at like 72 yeah. for strike three. Yeah. It, he's got a wide range on that changeup, and that's... That's always been that's always been one of his best pitches, though. He's really had some pretty good numbers in his career against lefties. I don't know if they're necessarily reverse splits, but he's always been good against lefties because of that great changeup. Yeah, and Brooks Baseball says that, you know, the, the changeup, at least since being with Detroit, is his, his biggest swing and miss pitch. That's the one that gives him the highest whiff percentage. So, again, very encouraged to see that he was breaking that out with regularity in last night's game and getting swings and misses on it. I think he had something like a 35% whiff rate yesterday, mm-hmm. which is great. That's fantastic. Yep. That's now, what you want to see. What we also saw, as I alluded to earlier, is the fact that he... One last thing, one yeah. last positive thing, is that J.D. Martinez is probably going to hurt someone with how hard he's hitting the ball all over the place. He's not you know, he didn't have much to show it. for it, but man, he was hitting rockets everywhere. He hit a couple to the warning track in that first game, I remember. Yeah, thinking, well, his swing looks great, and he's squaring yeah. the ball up, but uh, no cash to show for it just yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll be okay there. But anyways, let's... Let's talk about the little bad stuff. Okay, the little bits, because there's not a whole lot. Um, I was just referring to the fact that Sanchez kind of came unraveled a little bit at the end of his outing. Once he started to get up around 80-ish pitches, it looked like he was really kind of struggling with his command. Uh, You know, it was kind of unfortunate to see him walk Jose Fernandez, who's supposed to be, you know, the pitcher comes to bat, you always kind of feel like that's that's an easy out. Now, I know Fernandez can hit a little bit. Uh, and he has hit them out of the park before. But still, it just felt like Sanchez was kind of, I don't know, 
his command was was faltering and then to come back out the sixth inning and immediately give up a couple of hits um we know sanchez is really more of a, a six inning guy and so is this something where it's like yeah that's just going to be you know his numbers have never been great third time through the order except for 2013 they were okay but it just seems like it's kind of typical for sanchez that you know he's he's twice through the order and then you got to get him out of there we'll see i'm taking kind of a wait and see approach with this one uh, like you said, you know, his numbers that they're attempting through the order has definitely been worse, especially over the last couple of years. He's really struggled to get through that order the third time. You know, his numbers in the fifth and sixth and seventh innings really kind of really kind of climb there in a bad way. Um, but also, as you said, you know, in 2013, he was able to really kind of limit that damage. And you wonder if, you know, the late start to spring training kind of having a little bit of the elbow issue is what slowed him down a bit. And that, you know, as he starts to ramp up and, you know, improve his pitch count, improve his stamina a little bit, maybe he gets a little bit better in those middle innings. Uh, And so we'll kind of see what happens. You know, if the offense wants to keep giving him five-run leads, it's kind of one of those situations where you can push him a little bit and see exactly how that goes. Um, And so, you know, we'll see. And I, I, I hope that they can, you know, at least be able to do that somewhat, but you know, the Marlins have a pretty dangerous middle of the order to really kind of put him through, especially with Stanton looming there. So, you know, I, uh, I'm okay with, especially with the way the bullpen shaping up right now, too, to be able to kind of, you know, limit the damage and get him out of there quickly if he runs into trouble. I think as we kind of begin to notice this or, or sharpen our focus on this a little bit and see what Sanchez is made of and what he's not made of, you know, I, I, for me anyway, kind of having that realization and seeing him clearly unravel the third time through last night just really made it even more kind of uh impressive I guess what Avila accomplished in shoring up that bullpen you begin to see how necessary that is that you can have guys you can hand the ball off to you can get a guy like Sanchez out of there you know let him go five maybe five and a third two thirds but you got to have you know you got to have a good solid backup plan and I think we do now so uh, you know fingers crossed that we can actually as a team the Tigers can maybe take some of that workload off of Sanchez's shoulder literally and maybe he he's a bit healthier this year. Maybe he lasts a little bit longer because of that. Yeah, well, I mean, this whole kind of third time through the order penalty uh, that we're noticing with him uh, is really something that we haven't had to worry about very much as Tigers fans over the last several years. You know, he, Sanchez was great in 2013, and then you have guys like Justin Verlander, David Price, Max Scherzer, who are, you know, coming through and just blowing away the lineup no matter, you know, how many times these guys come to bat. Uh, and so the Tigers haven't necessarily, you know, I don't necessarily know that, I don't want to say that they haven't needed, you know, a strong middle relief core, but they've been able to get away with it because they've had such great ace pitching. And now without so many of those guys, you know, maybe Verlander accepted still, uh, that they're going to need that. And so having the deeper bullpen and, you know, having guys like Verhagen step up and, you know, obviously Lowe and Wilson uh, is huge for them. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at, though, is, you know, historically, then they've been able to kind of ride Sanchez a little bit harder because he is a good pitcher. When he's right, he's very, very good. I just wonder if not having a deep bullpen kind of forced them to use him a little bit longer in years past. And if that's not a little bit of what, you know, kind of wore him down that he said be on the disabled list, you know, pretty much every single year he's missed significant time. You'd hope maybe this year they can avoid that. You definitely hope so. Uh, you know, they're off to a good start with it so far. He only threw, I think, 89 pitches in that first start, and he's getting an extra day off, I think, this time through the through the rotation because Shane Green is starting on Monday. Uh, and, and, you know, I kind of like that Osmus is breaking up 
you know, Verlander, Sanchez, and Zimmerman as best he can, kind of using them and not necessarily putting Pelfrey and the fifth starter together to kind of save the bullpen a little bit there. Um, and so, you know, he gets an extra day off and a little bit more time to, you know, once again, just kind of condition that arm. So we'll see how he looks in his second start. Okay, we were about to break down K-Rod before we had a couple other good things to talk about, so let's revisit that. Uh, we've seen him now twice. He got to come out in the ninth inning two games in a row. The first time, nah, not a great result. Second time, it seems like a little better result, even if the process itself wasn't all that much better than the first time around. Um, what are your thoughts on K-Rod at this point? I am a little bit worried. Uh, you know, I had mentioned way back when, kind of when they first acquired him, that uh, we saw his numbers and that he had thrown his, you know, his changeup, what, 40-some percent of the time yeah. in 2015. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of joked about it at the time, but I said, you know, if he continues throwing that changeup more and more and more, is <laughs> right. it really even a changeup anymore? Right. Uh, and I think that we did see that a little bit with the Marlins. Uh, you know, granted, these, you know, the Marlins have seen him more recently it being in the National League than a lot of AL teams will have. Uh, that I believe I looked it up today, and he last faced the Marlins in like mid-August or something like that. So they've they've seen him; they know what he's bringing to the table. Um, but you know, not throwing the fastball as much as he should, and I think that was something that was mentioned in the broadcast during the second game, is that you know he had really kind of you know went to that changeup early, and they you know the Marlins hitters were sitting on it, and so he's going to need to you know just kind of use that fastball, use his breaking ball a little bit to kind of keep hitters off of his changeup at this point, because it's still a very nasty pitch, and you know he located it kind of well yeah, at times you know there were a couple that he hung but at the same time he threw one or two that were really kind of low in the zone and you know Miami hitters just put good swings on him uh so being able to you know kind of differentiate his pitches there and you know get hitters off of that changeup I think will be key for him but it's not a great start and it's it's exactly like you said uh you got to have some separation you got to have a fastball that differentiates that changeup that makes that changeup kind of a weapon now the thing that really makes that changeup so good is the way that it kind of darts and dives and I, I liked to see him the success that he had with it even in spring training was very encouraging to me uh enough to make me think hey you know what? i think maybe he can survive on that being his his one out pitch excuse me um <clears throat> But yeah, he threw it so often in that first outing. I remember when I wrote the post the next day, 68%. I mean, that's a little on the high side. 68% of his pitches were change-ups. At that point, it's not even a matter of the batter sitting on the pitch. It's, you know, that's just what you're going to get. That that He's going to throw you the change-up, just wait, you know, and, and hit the thing. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that, like you said, a couple of those pitches... And even in the second night when he when he faced Stanton, he left a couple of those right up over the plate. And uh, as you know, one of our site readers, Jaja Bajangles, wrote uh, in a in a fan post about changeups. It's very true that that pitch, if you leave it up, it's it's one of the it's one of the worst home run pitches. I think you know we only have to go back as far as uh, Big Poppy in the 2013 ALCS to remember what can happen to it. You know, to a changeup when it's not uh, not located correctly. I'm sorry, did I? Did I hurt you? A little bit. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to drive home the point. It's K-Rod cannot leave that change up up in the zone because I do not want to see that result again ever. So hopefully this is just a matter of him still kind of getting a feel for the pitch. It's early. You know, hopefully he'll, he'll kind of figure it out pretty quick here how to make that pitch drop and dart and stay low in the zone. Uh, but like you pointed out, though, that, that first night, I mean, good God, it was... Uh, it was Derek Dietrich who came in with that pinch hit 
and uh, and drove in one of those runs. That Set it pitch, off like a shootout. Yeah, the pitch was like an inch off the ground. I mean, come on. How in the there world? Was, there was that one. There was also, what was the one that like bounced off the plate like I was talking about earlier? Yes. And just went over Romine's head? Yes, that was against Real Muto, and that was a fastball. Um, but yeah, he, he hit it right out in front of the plate. And then it mm-hmm. proceeded to bounce and clear the entire infield. And yeah, and like in most other places, that's gonna you know kind of deaden and go to the third baseman, and it's probably gonna be an out. At least a, a one out. I don't know if they would have got a double play out of that. I can't remember how it was sequenced now. Uh, yeah, no, there was a runner on base. I'm not sure if they would have gotten the double play on a chopper like that, but you don't expect the ball to clear the entire infield. You know, I mean, what is that? 110 feet, something like that from home plate out to the outfield where it actually landed. And the fact that he was able to pull a double out of that was just, I mean, you can flip the coin, roll the dice a hundred thousand times and you're not going to get that result again. So a little bit of bad luck, but also, yeah, I'm kind of with you and keeping an eye on K-Rod and saying, um, let's make sure that that changeup really is a weapon and not the meatball that it was for, you know, Benoit at times that it was for even, um, Valverde at times. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, Rodriguez also had a couple loud outs there. Uh, I remember yes. the, the catch by Upton in left field. Game-saving catch, yes. uh, we will say. Um, you know, that was one that probably should have been down for you know, extra bases. Uh, and then I think he had one maybe later in the inning that was, you know, fairly fairly well hit that just kind of went right at someone. Yeah, they were making contact off of what he was, what he was throwing. Although he did get a fair amount of swings and misses. So that's, that's what you want to see. I think it's just going to be a matter of, again, not going to the changeup quite so often, not relying on that as, you know, the, uh, I guess it is his bread and butter pitch, but you know what I'm saying? Don't, don't make that your, your foundation pitch, make that your secondary, even if the fastball is only what, maybe four miles an hour faster or whatever it is. Um, I liked what I saw, um, at least in terms of the end result. And when he faced Stanton. I know he left a couple of them out over the plate and were, you know, fortunate that Stanton didn't kill it. Well, one thing that I liked about that is that they kind of adjusted during that at bat in that they, you know, they saw they saw what Stanton was doing, that he was really trying to pull the ball, that he wanted to, you know, tie the game with one swing. Uh, and so they kind of played off of that. And I think they threw him a couple sliders towards the end and really just trying to get him to, to fish for that pitch. And, you know, he ends up going out of the zone for that last strikeout, you know, a ball that I think Salto Lamacchia like almost dropped because it was so far outside. Right. Uh, but Stan went swinging for it. Yeah, it was definitely pretty far out outside and low. And it was just kind of it's one of those pitches that, that you look at the batter and say he looked silly swinging at it, which is quite the accomplishment to make Giancarlo Stanton look silly. Yeah, it was one of those pitches that Nick Castellanos would swing at like a million times last <laughs> I will say, though, that Castellanos' plate discipline looked better in this you know, first it, couple of games. I thought right. that he was, you know, laid off a couple close pitches. Um, yes. Not necessarily against Fernandez, and, you know, that's, you know... It, that's rough. I'm not I'm not counting those. No. Um, but uh, there were a couple of pitches. I think he was facing one of the relievers in that game, and that, you know, I, I watched this at bat that he... Uh, that he battled back from being down one two to get to get the count full. I mm-hmm. think he still ended up getting out, but um, to see him take a couple close pitches and really kind of work the count there, I thought was very impressive. Yeah, and in one of those, I thought he worked it back to full count and then actually got an RBI hit out of it. I can't remember which which bat exactly, but you're, yeah, definitely that sequence happened. I remember I remember pointing it out to my wife at the time and saying, "Wow, he he would normally swing at that pitch, and he didn't. He held off, and that's that's good." Good signs out of out of Nick Castellanos. Um, where were we then? Back to the ninth inning. Um, Logan Kensing. Uh, I mean, he'll be gone whenever Alex Wilson comes back. Yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. Uh, whatever. I I honestly forgot he even made the team. Uh, did we have a reliever that didn't pitch? One, two, three. Kyle four. Ryan, I don't think actually. Saw yeah, him. Kyle Ryan. That was that was who I was thinking of. Didn't actually get into the game. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, I I agreed with the decision to put Kensing in. You know, he didn't get anyone out, or he got a couple guys out, but but you know, oh, it's we kind of expected that. He's just plays. It's it's one of the situations where you kind of go, okay, the fact that he made the team is already kind of a bad sign, and he only made the team because you know Blaine Hardy didn't because he was hurt, and Alex Wilson didn't because he's hurt. So yeah, this is the bottom of the barrel. That is literally the bottom of the barrel that we saw, and he behaved like bottom of the barrel pitching. So what are you gonna do? He won't even. I know some people were texting me like freaking out, and I was like, he's gonna be gone in three weeks. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on uh, uh, James McCann and his his uh, first appearance there in that opening game. I don't know. I was just searching for bad things because there weren't many. <laughs> I mean, he went over for five. He I think did. he hit a ball hard once or twice. He did. You're not going to so, get the offense out of McCann. So, well, when you're facing a lefty, you will, I think. But he was facing a lefty though, wasn't he? he wasn't uh, for a couple of bats. He, he went over three against a lefty, and they had two at bats against righties. Yeah. Well, it's one game. Yeah. We'll, yeah, whatever. We'll like I said, that. I was searching for bad stuff, and it was <laughs> no, hard to find. It's hard to find a lot of bad stuff when your team goes, you know, two and zero out of the gate. Uh, it's far easier to be overly optimistic and declare the season over and the Tigers triumphant, um, which I will be happy to do. I, I think, honestly, Rob, you got to ride that horse. You got to ride that horse as hard as you can, as long as they're winning. Just beat the drum and you know declare them champions and piss everybody off in the process. I mean. Well, I tried to get the Orioles and Mariners bloggers to agree to just end the season now since we're all in first place. They're all undefeated, aren't they? I think. Uh, no, the Mariners lost one game, but they're 2-1. Oh, they? Okay. I think there were, there were a couple of the teams that were still like 2-0 and or 3-0 and or something. Uh, before we wrap this segment up, I got a little surprise for you. Since uh, in honor of opening day, I wanted to throw a little opening day trivia at you. Uh, because I went back and looked at the Tigers' history and looked at who were the top um pitchers who pitched on opening day and I wanted to kind of you know there's obviously been a lot of them but I narrowed it down to guys that only had uh, that had at least five opening day starts I want to see if you can name the four top four Tigers pitchers with the winningest records on opening day like win-loss records yep going by win uh, percentage yeah Justin Verlander Justin Verlander is the top of the list he has actually never lost an opening day start he has won one and had six no decisions. Does <laughs> does David Price count since he did the one no, last year? No, I, I, like I oh, said, I limited okay. it to guys that had at least five opening day starts. At least five opening day starts. Uh, I guess we'll go with Mickey Lolich. Mickey Lolich is number two. He was five and two. Very nice. Um, so it's a 7.14 win percentage for him. Let's go down the list here. Jack Morris. Jack Morris is number four. Uh, he, he actually had, I think, the most... Um, opening day starts 11 starts between 1980 and 1990 and he went seven and four for a 636 win percentage there's one guy left on the list let's go over the top one hal newhauser you nailed it there you go yes six opening day starts and he went four and two for a 667 percentage yes he was number three on the list good job he was he was another one of those guys that lost a couple of good years to to world war ii kind of like hank greenberg did yeah i think newhauser missed some of his prime Man, you know, to think, I was actually contemplating turning that into a drinking game and saying I would take a shot of whiskey for every answer you got right. I'm really glad I didn't do that because we'd have to cancel the rest of the show. <laughs> so, 
All right, that'll wrap it up for the Rounding the Bases segment. When we come back, we'll do warming in the pen and talk about the upcoming series. The Tigers have some tough sledding ahead. We'll talk about that after the break. Sanchez looks in and gets the sign from Brian Pena. Pena setting up away. The 2-2. Swing! He got him on strikes! A new club record! 17 strikeouts by Anibal Sanchez! And he strikes out the side in the eighth. And welcome back. We're into our warming in the pen segment. Tigers have some tough sledding ahead in the upcoming series. Series is is series is 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 is. Rob, they have to uh, go up against not only the New York Yankees, but they have to follow that with then a home and home set with the Pittsburgh Pirates. In fact, if you look out the next twenty games. We've got three with the Yankees, four with the Pirates, three with the Astros, three with the Royals, and then three with the Cleveland Indians, all teams that were either playoff teams last year or projected to be playoff teams this year. And I'll include the Indians in that because some systems picked them to win the division. That's a that's a bit of a rough schedule for the next three weeks. It really is, and it kind of emphasizes the point in that you know it was very important for the Tigers to win those first couple games in Miami uh, because you do kind of wonder how many wins they're going to pick up in in the next couple of weeks you know they have a uh you know an eight game road swing during this too they have two in pittsburgh three in houston and three in kansas city those are going to be some tough games uh you know and by the time we hit the end of april they're finally getting into you know hopefully some easier matchups you know it's definitely tough to predict uh but based on last year's records you know they've got you know some real tough sledding ahead of them uh and we'll see you know kind of how it plays out with the with the yankees i know the yankees came in and took three or four last year when when it was really cold and snowy and things like that so you know hopefully the tigers can kind of turn that around this year yeah that's right david price pitched in one of those games the big snow out game and uh, they did get beat up pretty bad um but you want to you know you hope that that things are a little bit different this year than they were last year and that is going to be a tough stretch of 20 games coming up but that's why i said to end the last segment you know i think you kind of kind of go full full hubris right now while they are winning and just enjoy the fact that they are because they could easily come out of this next 20 game stretch having lost you know or only won seven or eight of those games they could but you know we'll kind of see what happens uh you know the astros have looked a little bit shaky outside of dallas keichel so far i think i didn't take a look at their score today but i think they dropped two of three in new york uh in the one game they got blown up new york scored i think 16 runs Yes. Last night, yes, they did. Uh, so we'll see. Pittsburgh looked very good in their series against um, against the Cardinals, uh, and then the Royals oh, looked. Man. You know, the Royals kind of looked like their usual Royal selves uh, too. So, we'll, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, how, how about those Pittsburgh Pirates sweeping the series, taking three of three from the St. Louis Cardinals? The Cardinals are zero and three. The Cardinals <laughs> are zero and three. And, but the minute you like finish celebrating that fact, you have to kind of go, "Oh crap." The Pirates are looking pretty good. Uh, you know, I'm not sure who's going to finally win that dogfight, if it's going to be the Cubs that come to the top or if the Pirates are really going to, you know, make a run for it this year. But who do you want to face in the World Series? Because obviously the Tigers are going to the World Series. I mean, I'd rather face the Nationals so I can get tickets, but that's just me. There you go. Now you're looking at it from the right perspective. Who cares about the matchups? It's all about locale. me. <laughs> Let's talk about this uh, this Yankee series coming up. We got the pitching matchups, or at least what the you know projected probables are, uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, the game is at uh, like one ten. By the way, any plans to uh, watch that game? No, nope, I'm at work. Yeah, 
That's unfortunate. I don't like day games. Yeah, I don't tend to either, but it is opening day, and it's kind of like a national holiday here in Michigan. So I I am going to go to the local sports bar and just kind of drink the afternoon away and watch. But anyway, uh, starting out, we get to see uh, Jordan Zimmerman for the first time this year. He'll be debuting on Friday and going up against uh, Luis Severino. And we got uh, CC Sabathia on on Saturday going against Mike Pelfrey. Woohoo! Finally. What what happened there? I could have sworn we said Pelfrey was pitching in game 2. As well, in... I think that I think there was uh, they were, you know, just kind of waiting to see what happened with Sanchez and then yeah. cuz I was actually looking for this to write the game preview. I had to really kind of dig for it and you know, it was buried in an article saying, "Oh, Anibal Sanchez is healthy to start the season." Uh, and so it sounded like the, you know, they had had Pelfrey set up to pitch game 2 and then once Sanchez said, "You know, I'm good to go," they put him in there. Very interesting. Well, I've I've waited long enough for hashtag my tiger so i'm excited for saturday's game problem is isn't that a day game too i think that is a day game yep, i think i'm gonna miss game. it and like they're actually projecting that that one's gonna be colder than opening day now Ugh. apparently apparently opening day the the temperature is projected to be you know forecasted to be like in the mid 40s whereas saturday's probably in the 30s this is the problem with coming back and playing in the midwest i mean games are getting canceled left and right not just in the midwest but you know, I think there were some games on the East Coast that got shut down early on. Um, I know the Indians have had to cancel like two of their three games or something stupid. It's just a bad time of year to be doing this. And on Saturday, when the Tigers are playing, when Pelfrey is pitching, and I actually want to see it, we're actually going to be at the Whitecaps home opener, and it's supposed to be, I don't know, like 33 degrees here, and it's a night game. So, Ugh. Yeah. Well, I, the Yankees are at the, are, uh, the the Tigers are playing a day game that day. You can see that if it's the Whitecaps are at night. No, here's the thing: the the Whitecaps game starts at four o'clock. Gates oh. open at two, Ugh. because they're giving away those replica championship rings because the Whitecaps won the the Mid- Midwest championship. Well, you got to be there for that. I know, right? Like, but I got to be now. I got to be there at two in order to be one of the first thousand fans through the gate. And so, yeah, that that just kills the whole day. So I don't I don't know. Saturday's going to be a, a very grumpy day for me, I think. Anyway, uh, and then Sunday we've got uh, the Tigers on ESPN. Now, is that because it's the Tigers and because everyone's curious about the Tigers, or is it because of the friggin' Yankees? Who cares? <laughs> I'm ha- I'm actually kind of happy that it's on ESPN though, because I'm busy Sunday afternoon. So Sunday evening, I get to watch. So there you go. Because it's on ESPN, it means they push it back to the you know the eight o'clock time slot, and there we get to see Tanaka. Versus Verlander. So of those matchups, Severino, Zimmerman, Sabathia and Palfrey, Tanaka and Verlander, who are you looking forward to watching the most? I'm looking forward to watching Verlander Tanaka. Uh, you know, Tanaka really kind of shut down the Tigers the last time they faced uh, him. At least I think they did. You know, assuming, I'm just kind of assuming here because Tanaka's really good. Right. Um, I'm interested to see how Verlander follows up on that first game. You know, does he come out and he looks sharp again? Uh, what will happen with that? How does he deal with, you know, any potential cold weather? Uh, and so we'll see with that. You know, he's always kind of, he's had his struggles against the, against the Yankees in the past. Uh, and so we'll see how he fares against them this year. Uh, one I'm excited for in terms of this offense is facing C.C. Sabathia. Because he's the lefty. Because we've got that righty, you know, super righty I, heavy. I seriously think that this team is just going to destroy lefties. I don't see why they wouldn't, but I, I want to say they did that last not... year. They were the second best team in baseball against left-handed pitchers last year, and the best one was the Blue Jays. Were they? Okay. Even with you know the last two months of the season, they were still second best in baseball against left-handed pitchers. See, because I thought for some reason it was in my head that they weren't all that great against lefties, and I remember kind of being surprised well, by they, that. They killed lefties last year. 
Okay. I would have to look back then. Maybe it was 2014 or 2013 that I was kind of surprised. Like, why aren't they mashing lefties more than they are? Um, but that's that's good. If they are going to be lefty killers, then, um, I mean, you know how left-handed heavy that White Sox rotation is. Yep. I mean, Chris Sale is kind of a beast no matter, you know, what army throws with. But the other two, uh, I know that the Tigers really kind of roughed up Quintana a couple times last year. So hopefully that continues. Well, and the White Sox are hot out of the gate right now. So either that or the A's suck. <laughs> it can be both, right? Yeah. I mean, well, they, they had to, you know, Sonny Gray won the game that he started, uh, but they had to scratch him from opening day because he had like food poisoning or something. Right. And Rich Hill goes out and, uh, you know, lasts, I think, less than two innings. To the so, surprise of absolutely no one. <laughs> right. I mean, like, I thought it was, you know, kind of a shock that Hill got that big contract. He got like a six or seven year deal or something like that yeah. in the offseason. I'm like, this dude's been terrible outside of six starts for his entire career. And you're paying him all this money to start next year. Yeah, I don't I don't understand. But that's that's Oakland's problem. It's not our problem. Um, going back to that question, obviously, the one matchup that I'm looking forward to is just, I want to see Palfrey pitch a real live baseball game for Detroit. I've been such an advocate for him. It just kind of feels like I'm so invested in this. I want to see, you know, how it actually looks uh, under the big lights. Um, and it looks like I'm probably not going to get to see that. So frustration. Um, anyway, after the Yankees series, then uh, we've got the home and home in Pittsburgh. And at least for the Tigers, we know that uh, Shane Green will get the, the Monday start uh, next week. And then it's back to, it looks like Anibal, Anibal Sanchez on Tuesday. Yeah, we, we if ESPN if ESPN's matchups are to be trusted, then the Pirates will have John Neese, the lefty, going on Monday, okay. and then Juan Juan Nicasio uh, on Tuesday. Uh, Nicasio is kind of a surprise. I know that he had pitched in Colorado earlier in his career, and you can imagine how that went. Uh, but apparently, he's looked pretty good, and it's kind of another one of those guys that race here just pulls out of nowhere and turns into a good pitcher. So we'll see what happens. Um, it seems like in this four game series, the Tigers are going to miss Francisco Liriano, which, which I'm okay good. with. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Did you see Even though pitch? he is a lefties, I'm still happy with uh, with that. Yeah, he's in that Chris Sale category of lefties, though. It's like you don't even look at which hand he's throwing with. He's just he's impossible. Did you see him pitch opening day? I did, and I saw something during that broadcast that they were saying that, you know, uh, I think over the last five or six years or something like that, or maybe it was even longer, that um, – you know, Liriano has one of the lowest contact percentages or the lowest contact percentage. No, it was the lowest contact percentage among all MLB starters. And they were like, oh, yeah, and, you know, the, the second guy on that list is some dude named Kershaw. Good grief. I just, yeah, he's he was absolutely filthy on Sunday. And I thought, you know, I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, great, the Tigers got to face this guy at some point in that series. But that's good. It sounds like if they're if they're going to miss him, then... Uh, that's that's fine with me. I don't necessarily want to see that. They do have to face Garrett Cole. We get Jordan Zimmerman and Garrett Cole on Wednesday, it seems. I can deal with Garrett Cole. I mean, that seems like a fun matchup. I survived Jose Fernandez. I can deal with... I just uh, Liriano was just filthy. Filthy on Sunday. Did not want to see him dismantle our lineup. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's... Uh, uh, elsewhere around the division, uh, we kind of already hinted at the fact that the White Sox, you know, come out of the gate. Yeah, they, they had Oakland to you know, square off again. So they won three of the four, it sounds like. Um, assuming you caught the Royals opening game on Sunday um, when they saw that too. all over the Yeah, Mets. oh my God. And it frustrated me because they look like the Royals again, and I want them to not do that. I'm hoping that they don't. I'm hoping that that's just a function, as I said in the chat room, that the Royals are a high-contact, slap-happy team, and the Mets don't have great defense. They're a sub-average, you know, defensive team. So 
fingers crossed that you know the, the, the Tigers at least will have no trouble taking care of the Royals. I mean, Syndergaard shut the Royals down, so we'll see how yes, that goes. He did. Yes, he did. And I'm taking a look now. I know they drove his pitch count up a little bit. I think he only went six <laughs> innings. He only went like six innings against them. Um, ended up throwing... Where is it? Uh, I can't see it. Oh, he threw 92 pitches in the six innings, but he had nine strikeouts. Syndergaard so, did. Yeah. Yeah, and that's odd because I know the Royals are not a high strikeout team, and so you figure, you know, going up against a team like Detroit, you got Sanchez, who's a pretty good ground ball pitcher. You got Pelfrey, who's an extremely high ground ball guy. Uh, you know, I, Green is another one who I think induces a lot of ground balls. You would tend to think that maybe the Tigers would have their best success with, go, you know, those three pitchers uh, going up against the Royals, as opposed to, say, Verlander, who's maybe more, you know, high strikeout fly ball kind of thing. It's tough to say. Um, you know, sometimes those ground balls tend to find you know, just tend to find holes. I know that, uh, you know, batting average on balls in play on fly balls is definitely is generally a lot lower than on ground balls. Um, you know, part of that is a function of home runs being removed from the batting average on balls in play calculations. Uh, but also, you know, you have a lot more time to get underneath a fly ball, whereas a ground ball just kind of pretty much is determined by where exactly it's hit. And as I said earlier, the Indians haven't really had a chance to even get started. They had a couple of games and postponed uh, already they played two i think i think they made up the one already yeah well they, i mean they had opening day postponed and then they had it the next day because the next day was an off day oh okay i see so they they won one and lost one they're one and one so yeah the indians come out just kind of middling right now um but you know more or less keeping pace i know the royals are one and one too uh did the twins finish their game yet no they're up two one in the seventh right now okay so they are oh and two in my notes they're lol so <laughs> The Twins are, are the, the basement team right now. Of course, none of this friggin' matters. It's the first week, you know, and standings get very weird very quickly. So we'll wait and see come uh, come end of April what this is starting to look like and who the real competition is going to be in the AL Central. Uh, any last notes there before I close out the segment? Yeah, it seems like ESPN's notes were off and that we might have to face Liriano because I think Son that he's... A... Yeah, I think he's starting tomorrow... It says, because like, it's weird that, you know, you pull up the pirate schedule on ESPN and they have Liriano, Garrett Cole, you know, Jeff Locke on Sunday, and then Nice, Nicasio, Garrett Cole again, Jeff Locke, and then Francisco Liriano not pitching again until the next Friday. So get your, get your shit together, ESPN. No, it's, it's probably true because when I pulled up ESPN's list, uh, the day before Tiger's opening day, I think on Monday I pulled it up and they had Zimmerman listed as going day two against the Marlins and I knew that wasn't right. So yeah, I'm not just, sure shouldn't be trusted they're just uh, making stuff up right now good job espn all right that will wrap it up for this segment we'll come back with the high and tight segment we're going to talk about the new slide rule baseball and dresses when we get back three two pitch swinging a line drive left center field jackson on the run he'll make the catch in left center max scherzer a pump of the fist as he comes off the mound the bases are loaded with nobody out. He strikes out two and gets Kiasco on the line. All right, welcome back from the break. We're into the high and tight segment. Rob, let's talk about baseball in dresses. I'm referring, to, of course, to the little bit of fun news that came across the desk the other day. Uh, it was the Blue Jays. Uh, it was not yesterday, the day before. Uh, the the yeah, their, was... their game actually ended on a review play because of the new slide rules. It was Jose Bautista sliding into second, 
apparently went a little too far out of the bag line baseline and actually reached out his hand and tried to grab the player or something. I didn't see the video. Um, I know that the umpires reviewed it and called him out according to the new slide rule. This then led to manager John Gibbons coming out and making the statement that what were we going to do? Expect these guys to come out and play in dresses tomorrow. And now people are all kind of up in arms about that. I'm surprised that the new slide rule has come into effect already. I mean, we, we you and I reviewed this couple podcasts back a couple months ago. A uh, little surprised to see it come into play this quick. I'm not. Remember the remember a couple years ago when they first like instituted replay and they were worried about the transfer thing where guys were like catching the ball, especially on double plays, where yeah, they would like yeah. catch the ball, try to transfer it, and then like if they dropped it, it wasn't an out. Uh, and you know we saw that like what they change it like two weeks into the season because like there were like a bazillion instances where the guys dropped yes. the ball yes uh, and you know they had to go to review a bunch of times and so no I'm not surprised at all that this has already come into effect um, I didn't see the full video of that instance either I just saw kind of the gif that's been going around of Bautista sliding in and you know he he was going towards the base uh, which is kind of like what he's supposed to do but then reaching out and trying to grab. Literally trying to grab, you know, the infielder's foot. And I think that that is, you know, kind of, it should be against the rules. Wasn't that always against the rule? Being able to, like, not grab a guy? Um, (laughs) But, you know, I mean, he slid like he should, but I don't necessarily think the Blue Jays should be that upset. You know, if this is the way it happened, where he's, you know, literally trying to grab his foot and take him down. I just, I don't, I don't know. Uh for as, as as few amount of times as this you know whole issue of fielders being taken out you know by violent slides it didn't really come up all that much that's why you can remember the three or four times that it did come up because they stand out in your mind so that's why well i mean again gibbons i saw gibbons's post uh post game press conference he referred to it as the chase utley rule yes yes he did so you know you see how many t- I mean, and it comes up a few times, you know, you had Jung Ho Gong get injured last year. Right. You had Ruben Tejada get injured last year. But like you said, it really hasn't come up that much where guys are, you know, getting hurt because of these slides or, the, you know, the slides are becoming so egregious or anything like that. Um, and so it is a little bit frustrating from that standpoint. I, you know, I, I understand why they did it and they want to, you know, kind of clean that up a little bit and you know, protect the middle infielders. But... You know, at the same time for that to, you know, kind of decide a game like that, it, it is a little bit, you know, a little bit frustrating, both from a Blue Jays perspective as well as just, you know, a general baseball fan. Now, as far as the comment, you know, these like, what, are we going to, you know, play in dresses tomorrow? I think that would be awesome. I am all for baseball players going out in kilts and playing. I mean, you know, maybe it would have helped Josh Donaldson not getting hurt. Apparently, he, <laughs> like, twisted something coming out of the box the next day. I mean, why not? The the uniforms have gotten boring, and every year they try to, you know, bring out some new version of a design of something. The Arizona Diamondbacks have that new. Yeah, they're trying to do whatever whatever the heck that is. It looks like their stains. pants. It looks like their pants are dirty. It looks like they have uh, polo shirts with collars sticking out. Honestly, <laughs> that the red stuff on the around the collar. If you look at it in the right light, it's like, why are they wearing? collared shirts that's interesting so yeah i am all for baseball in dresses i i know he was being you know somewhat sexist when he said that but i thought why not that mean let's have a dress day you know they have ladies night at the ballpark why that's a perfect time to make the guys come out and play and and, they uh, wear skirts they wear they wear pink and you know on mother's day and stuff so see why not now the funny thing about this is right gibbons you know he when he says that he's talking about basically it's you know the the violence aspect of the game and the fact that that's getting toned down. But that triggered a, something else when I was thinking about uh, a day or two ago, 
in the Yankees game versus the Astros. Did you see this? The play where I think it was Carlos Correa. Have I got that right? Is it Correa? Yeah. Where he ran like four feet inside the baseline on a on a little dribbler back to the mound. He's running to first. He goes so far inside the baseline that he almost ran over the ball. And uh, Dylan Matanzas had like zero, you know, clear throwing path to first base. So he ended up chucking it you know, over everyone's head into the outfield. The whole thing becomes a big controversy. Joe Girardi comes out and challenges and says, come on, he's definitely out of the baseline, clearly out of the baseline, call him out. The friggin' umpires say after the game, if Batanzas had thrown the ball into Correa, if he had hit him with the ball, they would have made the call. That would have been a clear instance of interference but because the ball sailed up over the heads. They said he wasn't really in the way. He was not in, in the path of the ball such as it was thrown, so no call. I think that instance is why you don't see umpires talking to the media very much. It seems like they're just kind of, you know, flying off the cuff and not necessarily thinking things through as far as what they want to say. Um, as for the play itself, I actually, you know, I didn't necessarily think that Correa was, you know, doing that on purpose. Uh, you know, you take a look at the video and he swings and he kind of lurches forward a little bit as he swings. Uh, and then that carries him a little bit forward. And then, you know, just running down the box, uh, running out of the box down the first base line. MLB Network did a, you know, a few minutes on this during, you know, one of their broadcasts later that night. And that they're showing that, you know, when you're a right-handed hitter, especially if you get pulled forward through the box there, you know, a direct straight line to first base isn't down that dirt path. It's, you know, through the grass there. Mm-hmm. The dirt path only goes from the left-handed batter's box straight to first base. And so while Correa wasn't necessarily in the baseline, he was, you know, going straight for the bag. And so you can't expect him to necessarily veer into that dirt path uh, when he's running. And I think the rule kind of protects players in that sense in that, you know, if they're, you know, going as long as they're not like intentionally interfering with the ball in that case, maybe it is. But, you know, it's. I guess it's unfortunate for the Yankees, but I'm okay with the Yankees getting screwed. That's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Did the did this on MLB Network? Did that, does that mean that Harold Reynolds went out into that little part in the studio with the plastic? He pad? was actually uh, he was he was the one you know in that little you know dirt or that little infield the, spot that the they fake had in the, diamond. In the See out there with a in his suit and tie with a, with his baseball bat. Running. And then one of the other guys, one of the hosts, like just threw a baseball and hit him in the face. <laughs> Good. Let's make that a recurring half hour segment. Well, Harold and then Carlos gets... Correa Correa responded by hitting a ball four hundred and sixty two feet the next night. Did you see that, Homer? No, I did not. I heard. Okay, about so it. in Yankee Stadium, dead center field. You remember kind of like when Miggy hit that home run that they have center field, they have that black yep. batter's eye there. Yep. And then on top of that, I realized there are some seats up on top of the batter's eye. Yes. Because Correa hit a ball onto those seats. Good Lord. Yeah. That kid can mash. He's going to be so dangerous. Yeah, Jeez. can we just walk him in that series? That's right. But no, I mean, you know, the umpire has said a stupid thing, but again, I'm all for it. I'm I'm all for the stupid things these people say becoming realities. I am all for baseball players playing in dresses and bring back the soaking rule where you get to actually throw the baseball at the player and then they're out. That would be, I mean, even if it's just for one game a year, just bring back the old, truly old school rules for one game. It would be so much more fun. Talk about getting the youth more in, you know, into baseball. That would be one way to do it. It's like half baseball, half hunger games. You know, <laughs> just kind of go at each other with bats and balls and it, awesome. One more item on our high and tight controversy list. And this one I caught my attention. Uh, it was last week uh, that there are several baseball 
well, I should say baseball cities, which then impacts the baseball parks, where they are now banning chewing tobacco. And this is the case now in New York. So that affects Yankee Stadium and City Field. Uh, it's in San Francisco, so I think it's that's uh, AT&T Park, if I'm not mistaken, the Giants uh, Stadium. Dodger Stadium is impacted by this. Fenway Park in Boston, and then both U.S. Cellular and Wrigley Field in Chicago are all kind of under this you know, these new city ordinances that are banning chewing tobacco from the ballparks. That includes the fans in the stands, and it includes the ballplayers. This is going to make for a very interesting 2016, I think. I mean, there's there's really two ways to kind of approach this from the fan standpoint and from the player standpoint, especially because a lot of these guys, I think they're dipping all the time, right? It's, it's an addiction. They're, they're doing it on the regular. They can now be uh, fined actual cash dollars for, for breaking the ordinance. Um, And it like the fine kind of goes up incrementally, the more often you do it. So you're either going to have players getting fined for enjoying the habit, or you're going to have some really, really cranky, distracted players. I guess. I mean, I don't necessarily know how it's going to impact them on the field. Uh, you know, it's. I guess if it's going to impact them, I'm happy the Tigers haven't, or Detroit, the city of Detroit hasn't necessarily banned it yet. Um, you know, why are the cities banning it? If it, if it's not necessarily an MLB or a ballpark thing, why are the cities doing it? That I don't really know why it happens to be a citywide thing. Um, I, I had this statement here from the New York Mets um, saying, get this, preventing children from being exposed to smokeless tobacco is an important initiative, and we are glad to play our part in achieving this important goal. Somehow they're kind of all working together at this. Um, it just, I don't know. I, did You saw K-Rod, right? I mean, it come out yeah. two separate games. The guy has at least three cans of skull per cheek when he's on the mound, right? That, that There's no way that's not a, a cheek full of tobacco, right? I mean, he does have big cheeks, but yeah, no, that's definitely, you know, he's packing. tobacco in He's there. packing, yeah, he's so. dipping. Verlander does it. You can see him. He does much. it after the starts. He doesn't yes. necessarily do it during his start. But he is right there. I mean, he throws strike three of the third out of the last inning. He goes right to the can. Yeah, as soon as he gets that handshake. It's like handshake in one hand, can in the other. (laughs) That's right. So it's just, it's interesting that they're going to actually pull this off. And that's a lot of stadiums now kind of covered by this. I think I I rattled off five, six, seven there. You know it's going to eventually fall like dominoes. Pretty soon you won't be able to chew in any Major League Baseball park. Now, personally... I'm a little irritated because I like to do that during games. That's just one of my own little, it's my thing. When I go to the ballpark, I like to have sunflower seeds. I like to have a hot dog. I like to have a beer. And somewhere around the fifth, sixth inning, I like to pop a little chew in and enjoy that for the rest of the game. The thing that kills me about this is it's not like, it's not like the no smoking ordinance, right? If I light up a cigarette in the middle of the stands, I'm impacting everybody within a 20 foot radius. You know, you've got to deal with my secondhand smoke. What the hell does this have to do? I mean, we're talking about chewing tobacco. It's not like people are getting spit on. It's, no, hopefully not. It's frustrating that with this this whole thing about, you know, they're doing it for health reasons and, you know, for the children and don't expose them to this. And yet they're going to turn around and serve a 3,000 3, calorie burger in the stands. Or however many beers to, you know, all these people. Exactly. I'm just, so. I'm calling bullshit on this. And man, I don't know. Like, I like to dip during a game, but. Three hundred dollars fine is probably not worth it. So I, I don't know. know. I personally, I don't care. But yeah, it's it seems weird that they're doing. It, it seems like I said, it seems weird that the cities are doing it. I don't understand that. 
No, I, I don't. I don't get it. I'm not surprised to hear that it started in California. They're the ones that kind of started the whole uh, no smoking in public places campaign. They were the first ones to kind of shut down all smoking sections in restaurants and eventually. Yeah, and, and and I'm okay with that one because kind of because of what you mentioned. You know, secondhand smoke and you know having that. You know, if someone lights up a cigarette next to you, you have to smell it all game. You have to smell sure. it on them. Whereas chewing tobacco, you don't get that. No, I mean it's not the prettiest thing in the world to look at, but the same time like i said it's not like i'm spitting on the person next to me or anything like that but well, i don't know you can't do it at the at the lower levels i know that and i'm pretty sure it's uh it's banned in the minor leagues you can get fined for it. it's certainly banned in like say little leagues coaches can't go on the field and mm-hmm. dip during little league games or anything like that so they really are serious about this whole think of the children thing but still i'm just like come on <laughs> and then you're gonna serve these monstrosities from the menu that are so so unhealthy i mean think about it Whitecaps, you know, in particular, they're going to eventually ban chewing tobacco from the Whitecaps Park while they actively campaign for you to go ahead and buy that fifth third burger that's like, you know, 80 pounds of burger. And then you win a prize if you eat it all within, I think, seven innings. So that's real healthy, right? Heart heart disease is number one killer in America. That's right. Here, not only eat this, you know, monstrosity, but do it in seven and just cram the sucker down as fast as you can. We'll put your picture on the wall and immortalize you. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a weird world we live in. Anyway, that's what I've got for the high and tight segment. Let's tie it off. When we come back, we'll go into the mob scene at home, take some listener questions. I'm just going to go ahead and say more salty, please. I'll tell you what that means when we get back. Swinging a fly ball to left field. This one's deep. Going back, Gentry at the fence. It's gone. Wow. It's gone. A walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the ninth for Jose Davis. Incredible. Around third. Into the mob. Seen it home. And into the mob. Seen at home we go the portion of the show where we take questions from our listeners. Again, if you want to get us your questions, we do accept them at the website at blessyouboys.com or you can send them to us on Twitter. I am at hookslidebyb. Rob is at bybrob or you can send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com We have uh, quite a few questions to get through here, Rob, so let's let's get it, ro- uh, get it going. Nolan, um, that's our very own Nolan Meister, asks... When do I start panicking about Nick Castellanos? I think he will hit, but the defense is absolutely awful. I I don't know. Um, he definitely did not look good at times during that first series. You know, there were a couple a couple bouncers to him that you know could have been made by a better third baseman. Uh, I think that you know in one play in particular that uh, you know a couple people had pointed out. I you know saw it live and I thought that it would have been a very difficult play for a for a third baseman to make. You know, if Nolan Arenado is back there you know you expect him to make that uh but i think that you should expect cassianos at least get a glove on some of these um so you know maybe it was maybe it was a function of like the weird bouncy turf in miami i don't know uh but hopefully he starts to look a little bit better as the season progresses how old is nick cassianos 24 yeah it's you don't you don't panic i don't think you panic i mean I'm, i'm talking strictly about his defense i am too i mean i'm still saying he's he's been in the major leagues for all of two years right you know, at this point, and I have this, you know, wonderful working theory that he's really struggling to adjust to the big lights in the big city. He's got a lot on his plate that he's trying to put it all together, the defense, the hitting, all of it. Uh, I feel like he's got, let him focus on the hitting, let him become the the hitter that we all kind of projected he would be. 
And then maybe he can kind of focus in on defense and get at least marginally better. He already went from, uh, he posted a negative 30 DRS defensive runs saved in his first year, got that up to a negative nine in his second year. So he's trending the right direction. Um, when was Mustakas' big breakout year? Was he 26? I think maybe 27? Yeah, something like that. <clears throat> He was, yeah, it took him a few years to break out. But the difference is that Mustakovs was always a good defender. He was never a, he was, you know, light years ahead of Cassianos defensively. And that was part of the reason why the Royals were able to kind of keep him in the lineup, is that even though he was struggling for the most part, he was still playing, you know, good third base. I don't necessarily think he was ever a full win below replacement like Cassianos has been. You know, if you look at his fielding on fan graphs, though, I think there's a couple years there where he was under, he was below the zero line. I don't know. But how far below? Like if he's like a you know a thing, well, you know, I will, just like a one or two. But I will look right, yeah. Uh, he posted a negative three in 2013, a negative two in 2014. I'm, I mean, that, those are the kind of numbers that I'm hopeful Nick can get to. I think he can get from a negative nine DRS up to a negative three. And if he can do that and add some more consistency with with the bat, you know, the power that we've been told is coming, then I, I think he becomes this whole problem goes away and people stop worrying about Nick Castellanos. I mean, I think so, too. I'm just not as hopeful as you are. Okay. Well, like I always say, if you're not going to be hopeful beforehand, you know, what's the point? Why why go on living if you're just going to be, you know, negative about stuff? Because of the next question. Because of the next question. <laughs> exactly. Ask me the next question. Okay. John Chavo Jangle says, if Shane Green is performing well, how does he fit into the picture with Daniel Norris coming back? If Shane Green keeps performing well, if he looks like he did in that first outing, if he looks like that for five or six innings in a few starts, I think the question becomes, how does Daniel Norris fit into the picture? Because, yeah, I think that Brad Osmus has said, you know, even over the last few days, you know, that if Green pitches well, you know, he's going to keep that job. Um, and so, and and I think that he, you know, he very well should, and that, you know, if if you got Green pitching well and, you know, kind of doing maybe not necessarily what he did to open the season last year, but if he's generating some swings and misses and giving the Tigers some solid innings, you kind of figure out what happens with Norris from there. If he needs to sit in the minors for a little while, he sits in the minors for a little while. Uh, you know, we'll see. He's still only 22, I think. Um, and so he's got, you know, plenty of time. He needs to get some innings under his belt and kind of push, uh, you know, push the envelope from what he did last year. I think he was around like 120. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, we haven't seen anything from Green as a starter yet, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, his his stuff looked pretty damn good. I will say that when he came out of the the pen on uh, opening night. Um, and yes, if he can do that, look, Brad Osmus already said that from the get go, from the start of spring training, he said, "Don't forget about Shane Green. I don't want us to kind of forget that he's there." I think Brad Osmus has kind of been eyeing him, you know, as a potential fourth, fifth starter for quite some time now. And if he is going to perform that well, yeah, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for Daniel Norris to spend a year, maybe two, you know, this year, next year in the minors. Because th- think about the, the rotation. Verlander's not going anywhere. Uh, Zimmerman signed for whatever it was, five years, I think, five or six. Uh, you know, it, it's Pelfrey. Pelfrey is the one who's only on, for, on the hook for a two-year contract. He's the movable piece there. So if, you know, if Daniel Norris has to pitch, you know, kind of between here and Toledo for the next couple of years while he gets seasoned and Pelfrey's contract runs out, that's perfectly okay with me. I mean, we'll see what happens. Maybe they end up trying to shop, trying to shop Pelfrey this offseason. Who knows? It's possible. 
Um, if we get to that point where the Tigers are comfortable enough with those five and then the depth they have behind them that they're actually shopping Pelfrey, I think we're in a very, very good spot. That would be – that's a good problem to have. I wouldn't complain. I, I'm a big fan of Pelfrey, but um, I would be okay with that problem. The thing that, that I don't get into – I saw someone kind of mention this, I think, on the site or on Twitter. said, you know, what about moving Pelfrey to the bullpen? And I think, no, that's, that's not the kind of pitcher he is. He is a ground ball pitcher who's going to get a lot of ground ball outs. Uh, I think in a, in a relief situation where you're potentially coming in with runners on base, you want a, a zero contact guy who's going to get swings and misses, and that's that's not Pelfrey. So I would... well, I mean they they have a guy like that in Verhagen who's going to come right. in and you know generate some ground ball outs. Uh, the thing that I think Pelfrey brings to the table more so than these other two guys is that he's going to eat some innings, and this exactly. is kind of what we've talked about before. He's going to eat you know five or six innings in every start, and they definitely need that this year. They need the guy in the back of that rotation who's going to make, you know, you know, if he's healthy, he's going to make 30 starts for them and eat a lot of innings. Um, and so we'll, happen, we'll see what happens in 2017. But I think the Tigers are very much, you know, even, you know, with their offseason plan, they're very much worried about 2016 uh, and kind of figuring out what happens after the fact. Uh, you know, another situation to kind of go off topic here is Stephen Moya, who apparently looked really, really good in his first game today, hitting a pair of home runs yeah. for the Mudheads. You know, if he comes out and is just, you know, hitting the ball everywhere at the beginning of the season. You kind of figure out what you need to do from there. Uh, so, I don't know. But it's a good problem to have. It is a good problem that players overflowing. You know, outside, just like okay, where do we put them all? Great, we have we have depth. What's that? That's a thing. Cool. All right, there can be only one Verlander. Says if Anthony goes, keeps performing well, what happens in center field when Cameron Mabin gets back from the disabled list? This is one of those where I think that it's not necessarily going to change much, uh, depending on you know when when Mabin comes back. I think he's still going to get the starts against lefties. Uh, you may see Ghost get a little bit more playing time as far as like that that split with Mabin. He's not Mabin may not get as many plate appearances against right-handed pitchers, um, and so we'll see what happens. But I, like I said, I'm very encouraged with how Ghost has looked so far. You know, he's worked counts. That home run was very nice to see, and he's otherwise made some pretty solid contact. Uh, but he also started the season hot in 2015, as did the Tigers in general. And so, you know, we kind of got to take a wait-and-see approach with him uh, and just kind of see what happens as he as he gets further into the year. Yeah, I really have zero disagreement with anything you said, so I'm just going to move on to the next question because, yeah, it doesn't matter how well Ghost keeps performing. He's going he's gonna to split time with, with Mabin. iPhones are garbage has two questions for us. Who is the one player in the majors you just can't stand? Well, I mean, I think kind of a given one here is A.J. Przinsky. Uh But at the same time, I remember that he was on the Fox broadcast, what was it, like two or three years ago during the playoffs or something, and he, I thought he was pretty good. You know, this is a guy who I wouldn't mind seeing getting kind of a broadcasting gig after he's done. I feel his like that career. was as soon as last year, wasn't it? Maybe, maybe he was back again last year. But I remember this being, you know, a thing like two or three years ago, where I thought he was, you know, kind of funny, you know, very insightful. Um, no, go figure, right? He was good in the booth, like really right? good. Mm-hmm. So, um, but as far as a player in the majors that I just can't stand, um, I don't know. One that kind of comes to mind is Mark Teixeira. I just don't like his face. Really. Yeah. I don't like his face or his know. or his uniform. That too. Or his stupid last name, the way they spell it. Yeah, you can't spell it. That sucks. T E X I E. I don't know. I'm going to think of one towards the end of the show. R-I-A. Texiera. Stupid Mark with your stupid last name and your stupid Yankees uniform. Yeah, and I know someone else with the last name to share it and they spell it differently. So that always Because, of course, me off. they do. Of course. Yeah. 
You so. know, I, I'm in this love-hate relationship with Jonathan Papelbon. That's that's my guy. He was kind of a given. I figured that like he was like so high on the list that you can't pick him. Yeah, but like I did because I can and because I keep going back and forth. Like I I when he was being really super salty about the situation with Philadelphia and how he, you know, o- openly vocally saying I want to be traded, I was kind of rooting for him because I felt like, you know, at least he's he's being honest and that's what I you know, we, we've talked about this on the show before, the the post-game interviews where guys are saying nothing of any substance whatsoever. And here's Papavon actually saying what's true. And it was pissing people off. And I loved it because I love chaos. I'm just, I'm weird that way. But then he went and did that stupid thing where he choked out Bryce Harper and was kind of a dick about it. And I felt like, well, yeah, now I can't, I can't like you anymore. So. I wonder if he was hoping for us to like pick someone like Bryce Harper and rail on him or whatever. Bryce Harper? How, yeah. How did you, you see not- the hat? Did you see the hat he was wearing in his first press conference? Is it the Make Baseball Great Again? Make Baseball Fun Again. Make Baseball hat. Fun Again, And yes. now they're selling those t-shirts in D.C. already. I'm all for it. I I like Bryce Harper. I mean, how do you not like Bryce Harper? I love Bryce Harper. He's great. Who doesn't like Bryce Harper? I don't know. Besides Goose Gossage, because he's a stupid f***head. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. I don't know. I, there's, there's so many ways to slice this question. You could say, you know... A player in the majors you can't stand because I don't like his face or because he did something shitty off the field or just because he's a tiger killer that just is constantly in the way and annoys the crap out of you. Like, I, uh, If we're going off that, I'd say I'll see Escobar. Yeah, see Escobar. Coco Crisp, you know, always irritated the crap out of me um, and made uh, yet again. I don't know. Michael Brantley does his I hate his face. Yeah, he's good, though. I don't care. He I, His face. He's so it's so smug. He looks like he just he does. He just Kinda like ate your cat raw and and knows that you know it and doesn't care. That's what he looks like. He's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, what are you going to do?" That's his face all the time. Can't stand it. And I don't even know the guy. So there's no reason for that attitude, but anyway, iPhones are garbage. Second question, who will be the second reliever to get the boot along with Logan Kensing when Alex Wilson and Blaine Hardy come back? I think it's going to be Kyle Ryan that gets pushed back when uh, Hardy comes back. Uh, and it'll depend on the timing. I think that. Well, wait, know, wait. Uh, did we do the math yet? Are we sure that all the spots are filled in the bullpen? Yeah, like they just got seven on, spots on the, just on the twenty-five man roster. There was so much. Yeah, they have guys being off and whatever. Yeah, no, they have they have the five starters. They have uh, Verlander, Zimmerman, Sanchez, Green, and Pelfrey, and then the seven bullpen guys are K. Rod, Mark Lowe, Justin Wilson, uh, Verhagen, Kyle Ryan, Kensing, and. God, I'm already blanking on the seventh guy. Yep, I just blanked. So, but they yeah. have one seventh guy, whatever your name is. Why are we? Blanking <laughs> I don't know. Else? I don't know. <laughs> so, K. Rod Wilson, Low, Verhagen, Verhagen, Ryan's the lefty, Kensing. Kensing. Shit, man, who's the? I don't know. Guy? We're, all right, hold okay. on. Well, we, we're gonna we have probably to talked up. about him earlier. Anyways, well, like I said, I think that <clears throat> Kyle Ryan is going to be the guy that goes when Hardy comes back because you don't need three lefties. Uh, in this bullpen, and so we'll see what happens with that. I think that whenever Buck, Far- Buck Farmer's on the team, thank you. Wait, yes. no, that's on the yeah, yeah. He, Buck Farmer's on the team. Buck Farmer. Why don't we see him? We didn't even see him get up in the bullpen. That's fine. That's completely fine with me. <laughs> Buck Farmer shouldn't be in a major league uniform. Okay. Right well, now. no, I think that Ryan is the one that goes uh, when Hardy comes back because you don't need three lefties in this pen. Well, I was going to say the same thing for the same reason, but now that you brought up Buck Farmer, I, I guess I'd rather see him go down. The guy is just not... 
I remember even last year, he was getting roughed up so often as a spot starter that I, I looked at his numbers thinking, okay, if, if he's at least good first time through the order, then maybe there's a spot for him in the bullpen. And I looked at his, even his first time through the order numbers were like, yeah, no, nothing really of value worth redeeming there. So I don't know. I guess I'd rather have, you know, keep Kyle Ryan, who actually pitched fairly well, at, you know, in spring training. I thought uh, he had some pretty good swing and miss stuff. I would much rather see him stick around than, than Buck Farmer, but I don't get to make those decisions. And yeah, you're probably right. They probably won't want to carry the extra lefty. So Sorry forgetting about you, Buck Farmer. Sorry about that. You <laughs> Enjoy Toledo, I hope. Oh, boy. Um, last question here. Henry Zetterberg on Twitter, at Old Bear from A2. Henny. Henny, not Henry. Henny Zetterberg says... While one game is not a good sample size, how many games do you see Salty playing? Does he push McCann for playing time? It's definitely possible that he pushes McCann for some playing time, especially if he continues to hit. You know, if he's hitting kind of like he did. I remember back in 2013, I think, he put up some pretty good numbers. Um, You know, if he continues to hit like that, he's going to force his way into more playing time. We know that McCann, you know, he's going to be better defensively. He's got the better arm. Um, You know, I think that in pretty much any other aspect besides framing, McCann's probably a little bit better defensively in Salta La Macchia. Um, But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily offset, you know, the the vast difference in the two against right-handed pitching. Uh, McCann, you know, a lot of times in in 2015 looked lost against right-handed pitchers, and I was almost kind of terrified of the uh, of the thought of him facing Jose Fernandez, uh, so I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, but, and we'll see kind of, you know, how that split works out, but it may end up being a little bit more of a platoon than we actually think. I, I think I said from the start, when we were kind of first kicking this idea around back in the dark days of winter on this podcast, that I kind of anticipated it being more like a 60-40 split. Not, it's never going to be 50-50, uh, but as you said, Saltalamachia is the one who hits right-handers better. Add that to the fact that right-handed pitching is predominantly what you're going to see. You're not going to see a whole lot of lefty starters except when we're playing the White Sox. And so you have a case there where Saltalamachia could get a lot of playing time just strictly from a platoon perspective. Now, I don't think they're going to split it 50-50 because... I mean, well, this is the thing is that if he continues to hit like that, I think they could split it 50-50. I think we could end up even seeing Salty getting more starts if, you know, if McCann continues to really struggle against right-handed pitching. Okay, but McCann is the catcher of the future. They're not going to so? relegate him to a, a supplementary role. I'm not want. saying, well, I mean, he's never going to, you know, be like Salvatore Perez's backup and never play. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, Salvatore you know, Perez is a backup? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so we, we could end up seeing, you know, more of a 50-50 split there. Uh, McCann played a lot more last year than he really had ever had before, I think. Uh, I'd have to take a look back at the numbers with that. Um, So, you know, giving him another year where he's kind of in that, you know, split role, he doesn't need to go out and start 120 games to be successful. Yeah, I hope it's closer to 60-40. I mean, if it is 50-50, that's fine. I'm saying I'd rather it be more towards that end than, you know, 80-20. I I think they need to get as much use out of Saltalamaki as they can. Now, in terms of a a quote-unquote arms race, they call him the McCannon for a reason, but we saw Saltalamachia throw out D. Gordon last night in that second game against Miami, and Dan and Jim on the radio were talking about the fact that he put in some time 
a lot of time in spring training this year working on that very thing. And it seems in a one sample size, you know, one instant sample size to have paid off. Who do you take, you know, in the arms race? Is it McCann or, or Salta Lamacchio? Oh, McCann definitely has a better arm for sure. Um, you know, Salta Lamacchio, I remember seeing that throw last night. It was definitely tailing a bit, uh, which isn't necessarily always what you want to see from a catcher. Uh, and it just kind of happened to tail right into Gordon. And so Kinsler basically had to catch the ball and the glove was already on Gordon's leg. Uh, and so it was really kind of a perfect throw uh, to be able to get him, uh, which is, you know, what you need for a guy that stole, I think, 58 bases last year. Yeah, uh, I was I was impressed with, you know, how quickly Sanchez got the ball to home plate there. He he definitely right. looked better than he'd had in the past uh, in that aspect. But I don't necessarily think we should expect a lot of that going forward from Salto Lamacchio. No, Sanchez has definitely improved. I remember 2014, I think he was, I want to say, like 1.9 seconds from kick to mound and he's got that down and even last year he was down to like 1.3 so he's much much better at that uh you know as far as defensively with salta lamacchia I, I just did a post for the site today based on uh, you know some of the conversation that dan and jim are having in the booth during that game and again still saying that uh, both mccann and salta lamacchia spent a lot of time working on things like pitch framing as a skill set and you know, they were pointing out that Salto Lamacchia actually was an above average pitch framer at, at one point in his career in 2011 and 2012. And uh, you'll have to go read the post. You know, if you're listening to this, go read the post and kind of tell me what you think. Because it's just kind of a theory that I floated that he dropped off in 2013 and 2014. And his drop off in 2013 just happens to coincide with a change in bullpen uh, catching coaches in Boston. I'm not sure that that's, you know, the, the causation. You know, you don't want to get that confused or whatever, but. If that is what happened, uh, if he is you know a little more susceptible to good training, well then God, you got Brad Osmus, you know, who I pointed out in the post. Brad Osmus in his heyday, he averaged around twenty five uh, runs frame saved via framing framing runs. So I mean, there's there's some hope there. I think that Salta Lamacchia and McCann could both get much much better at you know that particular dimension of the game. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm still gonna say sixty forty though. McCann will get sixty percent of the games. Hey, you know what? As long as he keeps hitting. That's that's what they hired him for, right? Salty was picked up for his bat. As long as he's launching baseballs off the facing of the upper deck in right field against guys like Jose Fernandez, he can stick around for as long as he wants. And I love, love, love the fact that the Marlins paid for that. They paid for that home run. They paid for that stolen, that caught stealing. <laughs> they paid for like seven eighths of that home run. Yes, they did. And I, you know, of course, you have to wait to see how many home runs he hits before you, you know, kind of do the math. But I estimated that, that they paid that that home run cost them about twenty thousand dollars. I think so. I'm happy with that. All right, let's wrap up our into into the mob scene at home segment. When we come back, the seventh inning Kvetch, who kidnapped Brad Osmus. After the break. Three now. Here's the 2 2. Oh boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh. And Victor got tossed. All right, it's time to wrap up the show with our final segment, the seventh inning kvetch. We like to kvetch. We like to gripe about stuff. And uh, obviously, now that the season has started, it's time to start complaining about Brad Osmus, right? Except, damn it, Brad, 
there's nothing to complain about. And that in itself is infuriating. How is it that we got through two games and uh, I basically agreed with every decision that he made? Rob. I mean, he he could have pinch hit for Anibal Sanchez with the bases loaded in game two. Okay, let's break that I one was... down. Let's break it down. It was, what, the bottom of the fifth inning. Sanchez was yeah. uh, sitting around eight, 80 pitches-ish. They had a 5 nothing lead. Bases are loaded, two outs. Sanchez's spot in the lineup comes up. It was the it was the sixth inning because Fernandez was already out of the game. You're facing Sorry, yep. a reliever yep, top of the at sixth. this point. Top of the sixth. Yep. Yep. Um, and so you bases loaded, two outs. Uh, you know, if you get a base hit there, you know it's another couple runs. Uh-huh. And so I I would have liked to see, you know, Martinez pinch hit in that situation. I think, um, you know, and I know that a couple of people later had said that you know because Sanchez had such a quick hook in the next inning, he definitely should have pinch hit. But you know, it's kind of one of those fifty fifty things. And I see why he did it. Uh, you know, at this point in the season, you're also kind of working to kind of get guys stretched out a little bit more to making sure they're throwing enough pitches so that can, they can continue to build up. And so that definitely plays a role in that decision. Um, but as far as, you know, just kind of the game itself, I would have liked to see Martinez pinch hit there. Of course, then he hits a homer later, so you can't really complain. Well, he did it. You know, it's, it's the question of the timing. And, and I'm kind of sitting there going, I thought the same thing as soon as Sanchez was in the on-deck circle, uh, you know, and the bases got loaded. I said, oh, boy, he's, he's coming out. And I was, I was surprised that he, that he took the at-bat, but I, I kind of understood. I looked at the score and went, oh, it's 5 nothing." I mean, yeah, if it was a one-run game or you had a two-run yeah, lead. Yeah, one-run game, I think that he sure. definitely comes out. So, sure. I mean, you know, the scoreline kind of makes it like, yeah, whatever. And as much as Osmus's response to the question afterwards, he you know John Keating asked him about this on Fox Sports Detroit, and he said something to the effect of, well, well did you know that, Sanchez was going to give up hits the first two batters he faced because I didn't. He's he's kind of a shit that way. He's a little snarky, condescending jerk, and I hate that about him. He hasn't earned the right to be that crappy to the press. But a uh, little bit, and well, like and and but I agree with him the point. I mean, I <laughs> like yeah. And people were saying, you know, like, oh, there are clear signs that Sanchez was tiring, and you know, he walked Jose Fernandez. Uh, well, like you had said, Jose Fernandez isn't your typical, you know, pitcher at the plate. And so he's kind of trying to work around Fernandez and not necessarily hang anything. I know that in that bat in particular, Fernandez got a high fastball on like a three, one count or something like that and fouled it off and was really upset at himself. He was kind of wanting to, you know, swing and hit that a mile. Started and swearing. So, I remember he was. Yeah, he did. swearing in Spanish. In Spanish. Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully. Um, it and sounded so, like a song. It was beautiful. And so, you know, I, I don't necessarily buy that Sanchez. I mean, I, I think that Sanchez was kind of tiring at that point, but I don't necessarily buy that, you know, Osmond needed to know that and needed to take him out right away. If anything, I was very impressed that, you know, he had a couple of guys up and ready. You know, he had Ryan up, he had Drew Verhagen up. And, you know, as soon as those first two guys get on and Stan, Stanton comes walking to the plate, there's Brad with a hook right there. I thought he timed it perfectly. And then, you know, lo and behold, we talked about Verhagen's outing and how he pitched, you know, he got out of that jam without much damage. And so, you know, I, I thought he played it well and no complaints. Yeah, really, it would have done that. You can see at least, this is where I say it's, it's a step up from before, because a lot of times Osmus would make decisions that you can't even see the logic in it. And it gets even worse when he tries to explain it afterwards. This, you could at least see the logic and say, yeah, with a five-run lead, you know, I know people are coming from a place of you're all still afraid of the bullpen, so you're figuring, you know, we need as many runs as possible to keep it, you know, safe from this bullpen. I don't think that's true in 2016. I think a five-run lead should be fairly safe, and there isn't, you know, at that point, yeah, you might as well see if Sanchez can get through a couple more 
batters, let him stretch himself out a little bit. And if he can't, you're right there with a quick hook, which Osmus was. No no complaints there. And I, I really hate to say that because you know me and, and my Osmus feelings. Yeah, well, I also thought he did a pretty good job in game one. Uh, and the one that I was impressed by, I know that we had a post on the site about this, is that he used Shane Green in a high leverage situation. Yes. Uh, you know, seeing seeing a fifth starter used out of the bullpen isn't that uncommon at this point in the season. I think that, you know, he's done it in the past with guys. Um, but to bring Green out for a high leverage situation like that and to go over someone like Buck Farmer in that situation, <laughs> I thought was... I thought it was a very a very good move. Sorry, Buck Farmer. Um, I thought <laughs> I thought it was a very I thought it was a very good move to go to Green in that situation. And yeah. you know you do kind of see the logic in that as well. Is that you know you're in extra innings at that point. And so uh, I, well, I think they already had the lead, but I imagine that Green was already warming up to go into the game by that point. And so you know his you know theory there is that he has Green. He's going to use him for however many innings he needs. Uh, and just turns out that you know they scored a run and he ended up getting the save. That's precisely why I was expecting him to pull green, basically make him sit down again. Uh, yeah, he was up and warming when the game was still tied, and the Tigers scored the one run in the 11th to put them ahead. And I thought, oh, see, now he's going to set green down and go for one of his one-inning guys, like Buck Farmer or Kyle Ryan was still available at that point. I think Kenzing was still available at that point. So one of those three guys. And I was sitting there just pre-ready to be upset with the decision because I'm looking at it going, green is your best arm and that's your highest leverage situation. So. Well, and that's that's the other thing that I liked about that is he, he gets into extra innings. You know, he had used he had used Wilson, he had used Lowe, he had used Rodriguez in seven, eight, nine, trying to win the game. But right. then you know the game comes becomes tied and he has to go back out there. He goes with his best guy. Who, I mean, I guess you can quibble on you know Verhagen versus Green at this point, but. You know, I think that Osmus thought that, you know, Verhagen was his best guy in that situation. And then he goes to Green, who was his next best guy in that situation. Um, did Verhagen, like, did his spot come up in the order in that 10th inning or 11th yeah. inning or whatever? I think it did. Because I, I, was, I was a little surprised that he didn't, he didn't go multiple innings, but I can't remember if he had been pinch hit for. Yeah, he did, because wasn't it Avilas that put the bunt down? Yes, yes. Yeah. Avilas okay. came up in, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, all also, that to say that... I do like that he pinch hit there, even if it was for the bunt, because we're we'll relying back, on a. We'll come back to that because I wanted yeah. to finish the, just the thought on on using green that I I honestly did I've I've heard Osmus use those explanations so many times I was ready for him to sit green down with the thinking that no he's my multiple innings guy, I'll use him if the game is tied and then I'll you know use him forever long I have to until it becomes untied and then I'll go for my one inning guy whether that's Farmer or Ryan or whoever. And he didn't. The fact that he didn't, the fact that he went ahead, you know, and didn't pull the Alex Wilson crap like last year, like I was saving him for the extras, you know, I was saving him for the tie ball game. He used his best arm in the best situation. Kudos to Brad Osmus. That's exactly how it should have played out. One, now, one other thing. Well, where yeah. are we going to go to the no. bun thing? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, one other thing about bullpen management is that I know that some people uh, in the first game when Lowe came up, he was facing the top of the order, and so D. Gordon either doubled or tripled or something off him uh, in the first bat at bat. And I know some people were saying, "Oh, Wilson should have come back out, you know, and pitched to the lefty there before you go to Lowe." I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with that. Uh, you know, I think He's that that's better you know, against righties. Jesus. Sorry. Well, I mean, you know, Wilson had finished off the seventh inning, and then Gordon is leading off the eighth inning. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you see the logic in wanting Wilson to face D. Gordon, a guy who had already had a couple hits in that game. Uh, but at the same time, 
you know, I think that there's something to giving a reliever a clean inning to work with because there's no guarantee sure. that Wilson comes in and gets Gordon out either. Uh, and also having a reliever kind of go up and down, being able to, you know, sit down for a little while and even though the Tigers got out fairly quickly to, you know, kind of come back out and warm up again, they're not necessarily used to doing that. I don't know how Wilson's numbers as far as innings per appearance worked out last year, like if he ever did, you know, kind of a multiple innings type thing like that. But that's not necessarily think, a thing that relievers are always comfortable with. And so I do kind of like that the Tigers have this bullpen now where they can just have one guy in the seventh, have one guy in the eighth. You know, we'll see if they run into any situations kind of like Kelvin Herrera back a couple years ago where, you know, Osmus might need to go to someone like that in the sixth. But, mm-hmm. you know, either way, to have guys in the seventh and eighth inning, um, you know, as much as we hate bullpen roles, I think that having those guys being able to work full innings and get through that, you know, rather cleanly is going to be very helpful. Yeah, I remember when I wrote the piece on Justin Wilson when they when they traded for him, when they first traded for him, I did a, a just kind of a getting to know you story for the site. And I remember looking at his uh, kind of past experience with the Yankees. And no, not only is he not really a multiple innings guy, they used him primarily as a left-handed specialist. So he would come in and face like one, two batters and then be done. So even the fact that he's going full innings for the Tigers is is kind of using more, you know, more of his potential, kind of really tapping into his value. Uh, but yeah, I get, I get a little yelly and screamy there. I think part of the reason he was only facing lefties is because they had like 12 billion good relievers. In the well, evening. right. You've got Patances and Miller and, you know, whoever else is out there. You know, you don't still. It's the thing is, it, it, and I'm I'm getting screamy about it because people seem to forget this. And I'm just going to keep hammering it until, until we get it through our heads. Wilson has lefty-righty splits and he is better against the righties. I know that defies common logic. But both he and Mark Lowe have those splits, and they are both better against right-handers than they are against lefties. So it is not an automatic to say, now I'll leave him in against the lefty. He he actually does better with the guys on the other side. As we saw when he faced, you know, he faced one lefty, I think, on Monday and gave up a hit, and then it was righty, 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 strikeout, I remember strikeout. Wilson's splits are, like, fairly even. Like, he's slightly better they against righty. But, it's I mean, it's not he's a still severe split. Yeah, yeah, and he's still very good against lefties. Yeah, it's he's he's going to be a good all the way around. It's it's not a, a pronounced split, um, but yeah, the the typical lefty lefty matchup logic just does not wash with him. Um, what were we going to talk about? Oh, the pinch hit. Yes, we're going to. Yeah, Avilas came up and and laid down the bunt. Now at that point, uh, it was I think it was Anthony Ghost right that had drawn a walk of all things, and was on base. Yeah, and I thought that the, was that's a perfect time for it. You need one run, so you move the guy over. That's. I know, right? Kind of the one time that we want to see any sort of bunting. And to have, well, to have Avilas do it, I think, was was a good idea because you have, was it Verhagen that we had said right. with the pitcher at that point? You know, relieve, when's the last time Verhagen swung a bat or, this you know, exactly tried to lay down right. a bunt or yeah. anything? I don't think he's worked on that at one bit. And so, you know, having, you know, a guy that's done it before, uh, I don't necessarily know that Avilas is a bunting no. specialist, <laughs> although he might be. He might be by the end of the season. Um, You've got to, ha- to have that happen. So. <laughs> He's a bunt specialist. Well, and anyways, but I thought that was a good move there. Um, and it, but it will be interesting to see how Osmus plays some of these pinch hitting situations going forward. I know that there won't be as many opportunities without a pitcher in the lineup. Uh, in American League parks, and you know, obviously, he's not going to have Victor Martinez back there to just, you know, say, "Oh, here, go hit a home run." Um, so we'll see if he uses Salton Lamaki as much, or if he's still gun shy about putting his backup catcher into the game uh, from there. 
Yeah, that is an issue, right? Because you know you want to be able to use Salkalamakia off the bench if you can, and then at the same time that you know you got that little bit of a concern that well, you just took McCann out of the game, and then if Salkalamakia gets hurt, you don't really have anybody to kind of throw in the catcher spot except for Vmart, and don't do that. I think Andrew Romine is technically the emergency catcher. Has he ever caught? That's what they've said. I don't know. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like he could be, you know. I mean, if you're run into a situation like that, I don't think you really care. Roman can do everything. He can play center field. He can catch. He can help you file your taxes. He's just, he does everything. Not Well, and, and uh, you know, kind of going back to my point is that, you know, you go through the lineup and who are you going to pin, who do you need a lefty bat to pinch hit for? And other than James McCann, there aren't really any guys you would say so. Lefty bat? No, you're right. Lacius? You know I mean? You're not going to pinch hit Anthony Ghost with a lefty bat. No, you're gonna send maybe up there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So. they've already kind of got platoon setups already where they need them, so it's not really gonna be an issue. But yeah, that, so going going back to that, if he's um, using salty as a pinch hitter, it's gonna be for the guy that he needs to replace defensively. Right, but I think that the issue is still there. That even if he does that and then he gets hurt, then you, you're out of catchers to receive pitches. But, yeah, but I mean, I, it's just such an unlikely scenario that I hope that he doesn't worry about that. If that ever happened, I don't. I don't know. You would have to conclude the baseball gods absolutely hate Detroit, and that's it. Just go home. Stop watching. It's the season's over. So you're right. It's so unlikely. It's not worth even worrying about. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with everything you said about the whole Avila situation. You know, the fact that he was brought in to lay down the bunt made perfect sense at that point in time. I know some people on Twitter were complaining about it and saying, "But you're playing for one run." I'm going, yeah, exactly. It's a tie game in the extra innings. That's when that's you what play. you need. That's you what need you one run. No, the argument was, well, you got to play for more than one run because of that bullpen. And I'm going, stop. Just stop with the freaking bullpen stuff. Can we at least please get, get one through? and worry about the rest later? I want to get through the month of April in the extra we innings. Pass any more judgments about the bullpen? Play. You know, let's let it play out. Give me till even the end of May, and then we can start saying, yeah, same old bullpen or whatever. But no, it's a perfect spot for Avilas, and exactly to what you said. Some people said that, too, on Twitter. Well, why didn't you just use Verhagen? Because he, I don't think he's ever laid down a bunt in his life. Yeah. It was, yeah. Like, I mean, if you, I mean, well, you're not really going to run into a situation like that with a starter. Like, if, you know, Verlander's going up there in the fourth inning with a guy on first, yeah, you bunt him over because, you know, I mean, Verlander is now what? I think someone said Verlander was like three for eight in his last, you know, eight plate appearances or something like that. He's on fire. (laughs) Just keep it going, man. Keep it rolling. Just keep it going. Now, you see, he even he put something on Instagram or Twitter the other day, um, like after that. It was that night, I think, after that game, and like the top. It was just a a, a, like a screenshot of a um, roster like you know listing from espn or something listing like the top four hitters on the team and it was like you know the names are not important it's like justin upton batting average 1000 miguel cabrera 1000 justin verlander 333 so he was all proud of that and like posted it was like what i wonder what i wonder what his brother had to say about that well well, we could probably find out after uh what was that it was the 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 spring training game like right before the season started where he hit the home run ben verlander hits hits yeah there you go and he, Justin Verlander had to pull strings to get Ben Verlander into that game. He was not scheduled to play in that game. Yeah. He wanted to face his little brother. I think he wanted to show him up, strike him out, and instead Ben took him deep for a home run, and that's that's awesome. Okay, uh, I think that's just about it. Time to call it quits for yet another episode of The Voice of the Turtle. Rob, any, any last words? 
I forgot how much less sleep I get during baseball season. Right. So kind of feeling that a little bit right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... But hey, you know what? I'll take it. Baseball well, is back and it's fun. And and we've got time to kind of get stretched out, get in the midseason form because we don't have any of those uh, West Coast games coming up just yet. Although you did say no, that'll be good. They're playing in Houston, though, aren't they? Yeah, I mean they're what one hour, two hours behind. Two. I thought two. Okay. okay. That, that's... I think they're only whatever. I think it's only one, but uh, we'll see. Um, what was I going to say? Oh no, I well, I'm just happy that we have the night game on ESPN. I like night. I like the Sunday night game. Having that, I know a lot of people are kind of against that um, because you can do things with your Sunday. Right. And then the baseball's not until later. I'm with you. I'm totally so with I'm you. So I'm all for all the Sunday night games. We don't suck on ESPN anymore. <laughs> I know that there was a couple years ago we like never won when we were on national TV. Yeah. I think we're like, you know, back to normal with that. I don't know. There have been a couple. There have been a couple. 2014 was one. I went to that game and the, the tickets, you know, were like for, I don't, it was whatever the tickets were for, one thirty in the afternoon and then they got bumped to 8 o'clock because ESPN was going to show that game. And that was mm-hmm. the game where uh, they played the Red Sox and uh, Jabba Chamberlain blew it, gave up a home run to, to Big Poppy. So they lost that game on ESPN. At least you didn't go to the game where they gave up 20 home runs. <clears throat> no, I didn't. But that was an ESPN points. game that they blew it. And then later that year, I remember Porcello pitched. Yes, it was right before the trade that was the twenty. That was a 20-run 20 20 run game. No, 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 no. I'm talking about... Oh, your last year? In 2014, Porcello pitched against the Rays. He went up against David oh. Price right before the trade deadline, right before we got Price. And that was an ESPN yeah. again game, and he got rocked on that one, too. So, No, I remember that game. I think Porcello got hit for... Oh, actually, yeah, maybe he did get rocked. He got knocked out of the game in like the fourth or fifth inning. Something ridiculous. Yeah, but then the Tigers scored some runs off Price and made it close, but then they lost. Yes. So here's to winning an ESPN game. That's, I guess, what I'm getting at. So... All right. Remember, we're only one half of the conversation, and you're the other half. So leave us your comments at the website at blessyouboys.com or on Twitter at hookslidebyb, at bybrob, at blessyouboys, or just send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Rob Rojacki and hopeful backup catchers everywhere, this is Hookslide reminding you to keep your rosin bags dry. I didn't bring enough to share. And we'll see you the next time on The Voice of the Turtle.